Hey everyone, it's James Lindsay, and we are about to do a pretty intense episode of the New Discourses podcast. WTF is SEL. That's what I'm calling this one. WTF is SEL. What the F is social emotional learning? So we're going to have, I think this one's going to be like all of the SEL ones fairly long. So let's just kind of jump into it. I um, guess I should spend a minute, (laughs) a minute, uh, summarizing what social emotional learning is for the people who are not keeping up with the infinite amount of information you have to know to understand why anything I'm talking about matters. But social emotional learning is a extraordinarily widespread program. In fact, it is probably a completely uh, ingrained program throughout education now. It is retooled. The, the, the objective of, of creating academic mastery or competence and replaced it with the objective of doing uh, creating social and emotional competence, things like relationship management, uh, self-awareness, social awareness, responsible decision-making. You can just hear these kind of core competency areas from the organization CASEL, which is the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, which kind of heads up, for the moment, kind of heads up social-emotional learning advocacy and uh, implementation in the United States right now with billions upon billions in federal money coming into it and it being in virtually every school system in America. Let's not um, understate the scope of this problem. And you can virtually hear how every one of those competency areas is just a entry point for wokeness. Social awareness, well, you're going to talk about what it means to be socially aware of structural power, systemic power, critical race theory, queer theory, gender ideology, it's all coming in. Self-awareness, whoops, same thing. How have you contributed to racism? What does it mean to be a boy? What does it mean to be a girl? Are you? What's your sexuality? How do you feel about that? Blah, blah, blah. Whole thing. Responsible decision-making. How do you challenge systems of power? This is actually literally what the program of SEL as it's implemented today does. It's called Transformative Social-Emotional Learning. It's a podcast coming soon when I finish getting that one organized too. Transformative Social-Emotional Learning, even Castle, maybe on the chopping block. Something even more radical, even more woke, called Culturally Affirming Social-Emotional Learning is already circulating heavily at the Department of Education. And again, let me put... Let me make this very clear. Since since they passed the law, the ESSA, the Every Student Succeeds Act, ESSA, in 2015, through Congress, signed into law by Obama, uh, which, among many, many other things, it's a law about the thickness of a reference book, uh, but among other things, it takes the Common Core architecture and requires the reporting on one non-academic competency They have rolled this out through an army of consultants and got it in virtually every school system and billions upon billions of education dollars are dedicated wholly to implementing social emotional learning in every school system in America and beyond through what's called the WISC model. That's W-S-C-C, whole school, whole child, whole community. They are trying to implement social-emotional learning beyond just the schools and literally uh, to train parents, to train people like coaches in the Little League or uh, people who work in hospitals. Basically, anybody, anywhere, ever, always is going to have to use social-emotional learning. We, I've done like a dozen podcasts on social-emotional learning. There are articles on new discourses. 
There are a billion reasons not to trust it. Can't summarize all that now. I just need you to know that it's a huge program. Billions of billions upon billions of dollars are being used to transform the entire American education system, and actually around the world, the Western world at least, into social emotional learning centers. Um, and it's headed up kind of by this organization, or has been for the past roughly 30 years almost, by this organization called Castle, the collaborate what is it, the collaborative for academic social and emotional learning. Okay. I want to start off by reading to you a quote. I'm actually going to read quite a lot from a book you probably haven't heard of. This book is called this book was published sometime well, I think it was published in 1954, but I think it was written sometime in the 1930s. That's a bit difficult to tell. It's by a woman named Alice Bailey, and the book is called Education in the New Age. It's a very bizarre book, and we're going to read quite a lot of it today for this episode where we explore what the F is social emotional learning. And so what she wrote, we'll say roughly 90 years ago, to put a guess, because she died in 1949, so she couldn't have written it in 1954 when the book was published. Um, she wrote, the educator of the future will need to be more of a trained psychologist than he is today. Besides imparting academic knowledge, he will realize that his major task is to evoke out of his class of students a real sense of responsibility. No matter who he, sorry, no matter what he has to teach, history, geography, mathematics, languages, science, and its various branches, or philosophy, he will relate it all to the science of right human relations and try to give a truer perspective than in the past upon social organization. So that science of right human relations, every subject is going to be related to that science of right human relations. That's what social emotional learning does when they implement it in a program called systemic social emotional learning, systemic SEL, which is everything, which is how Castle sees SEL is needing to be implemented, which is what the Department of Education in the United Nations is pouring rivers of money into making sure is what happens in every, not just American school, but American classroom in every subject. What we're seeing is the attempt to bring what they now call social-emotional learning into every single subject. History, geography, mathematics, languages, science, and its various branches or philosophy. The teacher of the future, who is more a trained psychologist than educator, will relate it all to the, quote, science of right human relations. That would be social-emotional learning. In order to try to give a truer perspective than in the past upon social organization. So, why am I quoting from this weird book? And wait, wait till you hear how weird it is. From the 1930s, 40s, 50s. It was published in 54, whatever. Um, it, bringing this up about social-emotional learning, which actually was created in 1994. Well, let's summarize a little bit of SEL and see if we can work our way backwards to why I'm talking about this book, with its so-called science of right human relations, being in intertwined and infused into every single subject, with the teacher acting more as a psychologist than as an educator. So let's turn to the Handbook of Social-Emotional Learning Research and Practice. And that was published in 2015 or 16, I'd have to double-check, um, right from the, from the beginning. They summarize the history of 
social emotional learning and the organization Castle. That's C-A-S-E-L again. And they write, In 1994, a group of educators, researchers, and child advocates met at the Fetzer Institute to discuss effective coordinated strategies to enhance students' social-emotional competence, academic performance, health, and citizenship, and to prevent and reduce health, mental health, and behavior problems. The Fetzer group introduced the term social and emotional learning as a conceptual framework to promote the social, emotional, and academic competence of young people and to coordinate school, family, community programming to address those educational goals. Meeting attendees also launched the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, CASEL, as an organization with the mission to help establish evidence-based social-emotional learning as an essential part of preschool through high school education. See www.castle.org. For 21 years, Castle has served as strategist, collaborator, convener, and supporter for individuals and organizations that prioritize promoting children's social-emotional development and academic performance. Castle's mission is to help establish evidence-based SEL as an essential part of preschool through high school education. Its organizational goals are to advance the science of SEL, not the science of right human relations, expand effective SEL practice, and improve federal and state policies that support broader implementation of evidence-based programming. Okay, so what we're going to lock onto within all that stuff is the Fetzer Group. The group meeting at the Fetzer Institute in 1994, this group of educators, researchers, and child advocates. Prominent among them were, um, what's his name, Tim Shriver, who was the CEO of the Special Olympics and has all this weird spiritual unity nonsense he does now. Um, Daniel Goleman, who wrote the book Emotional Intelligence, which of course is bogus uh, and fits right into this framework. Um, it's hard to actually find the full list, but I think I did dig it up at one point of the so-called experts and whatnot. But Shriver and Goleman are two of the kind of key players in the creation of this. Now, let's read another description because I really want to make this clear. Another description of the early years of Castle and SEL. This is from a psychologist named uh, Gail Macklem. M-A-C-K-L-E-M, from the Massachusetts School of Professional Psychology, and she wrote in a paper in 2003 about SEL, uh, quote, as important as academic competence may be, children and adolescents also need to be able to interact with others in respectful ways, master good work habits and values, contribute to society, and be good citizens. Many educators and parents are in favor of a broader educational mission for our schools that includes social-emotional competence, character development, mental health, and involvement in one's community. Many educators and parents, you know, like four out of five dentists, like they picked five, four of them. Okay, never mind. We know how that works. Schools must do more than ever before, while at the same time dealing with a multitude of challenges as a result of a changing school population and limited resources. Many preventative efforts have been initiated at schools, but in the past, they have not been linked to the school's mission and have been fragmented in their approach. Frustrated at the lack of success of preventative health promotion efforts, the Fetzer Institute, a nonprofit foundation focused on relationships between people, held an important meeting to address this concern. 
The term social and emotional learning, SEL, was first presented at the 1994 Fetzer Institute, which was designed to focus on disjointed efforts to improve children's well-being and positive interrelationships. One outcome of the Fetzer Institute was the formation of the Collaborative for Academic Social and Emotional Learning, CASEL. The goal of CASEL has been to establish evidence-based SEL programming preschool through high school. CASEL has become the guide to school-based SEL preventative efforts, and since 1990, SEL has become a major emphasis in American education. Since 1990, which is kind of a shock since it's before it existed, but okay. Um, She also adds that social-emotional learning has a strong base of interest. It has gained momentum because of an emphasis on emotion and spirituality progress in brain research, and because SEL addresses what researchers consider mediators of academics. Okay, well, mediators, for those of us that are paying attention to what I've uncovered with Paulo Ferreri, who sees educational objects like a reading lesson or a mathematics word problem as a mediator to, quote, knowledge, by which he means political conscientization or Marxist critical consciousness, is something sticks out here, but that an emphasis on emotion and spirituality is why social emotional learning has such a strong base of interest, plus progress in brain research. Now, it turns out that those are big hobby horses. We heard the Fetzer Institute mentioned again. These were big hobby horses of John Fetzer, who created the Fetzer Institute with his many, many millions of dollars that he had. And so let's Take a deeper look at the Fetzer Institute. It turns out, if you don't know, that Fetzer, one of his main objectives was, in fact, to fuse religion and science into one thing and then to channel that into the next generation through, uh, through education. This is really a big deal for him. So who was John Fetzer and what was his so-called Fetzer Institute? So John Fetzer lived through the majority of the 20th century. I think he lived to be 90 or 91, something like this. He was a radio magnet. He made a ton of money in radio early on. I think he was a big baseball fan. Maybe that has something to do with his his, his radio stuff. But he became one of the world's richest 400 men. He became the owner of the Detroit Tigers, though he described himself as its steward and said the fans actually own the team and he's just managing it. Uh, as its technical owner, but he owned the Detroit Tigers for a number of years. He was a former Seventh-day Adventist. He um, got very interested as he kind of fell out of that in various aspects of spirituality, uh, but he continued to pose as a mainline Protestant. But at home, and in his day-to-day life, he was an extraordinary spiritualist. Now, if you don't know what spiritualism is, it's not the same as being spiritual. It's not the same as caring about spiritual matters. It is kind of a cult. So what kind of stuff was he into? Well, he was deeply into psychic powers, telekinesis, wellness in this kind of general form. He, in fact, helped uh, establish a wellness institute at Western Michigan University or something like this. Uh, a dean of wellness or some vague thing within their medical program, big proponent of meditation, not necessarily a problem, believed in ma- manifesting, you know, like the law of attraction, believed in, he, he coached people in the Detroit Tigers to manifest where they would, you know, want the pitcher would to manifest where he wants the ball to go. Um, big fan of channeling, um, as in like seances, 
like talking to dead people and spiritual beings. Uh, he was deeply into the occult and into theosophy. Now, this isn't, I don't want to paint the guy like he was some evil demonic character. Apparently, he was quite charming, quite nice, quite warm, but he had some very peculiar and mysterious kind of sideways religious beliefs. He was, for example, a 33rd level Freemason. With his theosophical and occult believings, he teamed up with a guy, a famous psychic named Jim Gordon and other psychics, but Jim Gordon would often get together with him and they would channel together the Archangel Michael and get ideas about what to do with business or the Institute or whatever else. So they would believe that they were talking psychically to the Archangel Michael. Um, he was a huge devotee also of the so-called Mother of the New Age, who we've already heard from. Her name was Alice A. Bailey. The quote I started out with is from Bailey's book, Education in the New Age. Turns out, John Fetzer owned all of Alice's books, kept them all, read them all frequently, returned to them. In fact, Alice A. Bailey had a great invocation in her book, and every time they had formal meetings of whatever type at the Institute, John Fetzer closed those meetings by reading the Great invoca Invocation or reciting it from Alice Bailey. Alice Bailey was a theosophist. If you've never heard of theosophy, it's crackpot religion is what it is. It is occultism. It is something like hermeticism and Gnosticism, but in this goofy kind of new age, hippy-dippy, Jiddu Krishnamurti kind of flavor. In fact, Jiddu Krishnamurti was one of the supposed, you know, high-level theosophists that they that they kind of anointed and lifted up as some kind of a huge important character. Um, so things like the Esalen Institute and um, Werner Erhard's weird coaching stuff is all wrapped up in this uh, theosophy. Um, Though in, in the West, and particularly in the United States, via the UK, and also in Germany, uh, really took off through what was called the Theosophical Institute, which was founded by a um, fraud by the name of Helena Blavatsky, who claimed to be a psychic who could levitate, um, and all kinds of other things, and wrote some pretty intense books. I think the, her primary book was called The Secret Doctrine, but I'd have to look that up again. Um, Helena Blavatsky was quite the character, and Alice Bailey was under um, Blavatsky until she started doing her own channelings and got kicked out of the Theos uh, Theosophical Society. And John Fetzer was a fan of both of these occultists. So John Fetzer, after this very successful career for many years in radio and other technologies, and then in owning the Detroit Tigers, created the Fetzer Institute there in Kalamazoo, Michigan, of all places, in order to advance Fetzer's spiritualist endeavors aside from his business endeavors. In true weirdo occult hermetic fashion, he built the building shaped like triangles to represent the triad of mind, body, and spirit. The building is filled with triangles. He dumped literally hundreds of millions of dollars of his own money into the Institute's ambition, which was to create and disseminate a New Age religion. And like I said, his goal was to fuse science and religion because he thought they were actually two sides of the same coin, that they're actually equal to one another. And this is all typical of broadly hermetic, occultist, New Age thought. And again, 
the Fetzer Institute unapologetically is where the science of right human relations, aka social emotional learning, came from. And Castle emerged from it. This they, they don't hide that. They they say so in on, on the Castle website. They say so in the books about social emotional learning. They say so in papers about social emotional learning. They say so on the Fetzer Institute website. So here's how the Fetzer Institute describes its mission. At the Fetzer Institute, we believe in the possibility of a loving world, a world where we understand we are all part of one human family and know our lives have purpose. In the world we seek, everyone is committed to courageous compassion and bold love, powerful powerful forces for good in the face of fear, anger, division, and despair. Inspired by our founder, John E. Fetzer, the E is for Earl, uh, by the way, we encourage each other to discover new ways of knowing our sacred world and explore our personal spiritual journeys as we work toward transformed communities and societies in which all people can flourish. Doesn't that sound kind of like social emotional learning stuff? Doesn't it sound woke? Each member of our team and each of our partners committed to this common vision brings a unique spiritual and religious lens, but all of us are drawn into community by our shared sense of sacred connection to ourselves, each other, and our planet. Together, or sorry, and together, we inspire and serve a global movement transforming the world into a more loving home for all. What we read about John Fetzer on the Fetzer Institute website is in his private life, John Fetzer had an intense intellectual curiosity about the, quote, unseen elements of life. He studied various forms of meditation, prayer, philosophy, and positive thinking, and explored various healing modalities. From a young age, he also had a passion for baseball, an enthusiasm that led him to purchase the Detroit Tigers baseball club. In his later years, he established an endowment for the Fetzer Institute through the sale of the team and his media holdings. From what I read, this is over $200 million, by the way. The interests that shaped John Fetzer's life are the seedbed for questions that define the work of the Fetzer Institute. How can the secular and sacred elements of life be better integrated? How can the insights of science and the power of technological innovation be utilized to explore the capacities of the mind and spirit? How can the wisdom and insight gained through inner exploration be used to better our individual and collective well-being? And how can the entrepreneurial spirit and financial resources gained from the American business sector be used in the service of creating a better world? Now let's back up to Gail Mecklen and what she said about why social-emotional learning is so popular. Social-emotional learning has a strong base of interest, she said. It has gained momentum because of an emphasis on emotion and spirituality, progress in brain research, and because SEL addresses what researchers consider mediators of academics. And like I said, or like she said, it was first presented, social-emotional learning, at the Fetzer Institute in 1994. Now, this is after John Fetzer's death. He died in, I think, 1991, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but what we see here is remarkable overlap between the vision of John Fetzer and the vision of social-emotional learning that came out of the Fetzer Institute. Um, let's get into a little bit more about John Fetzer. It turns out if there's a lot. John Fetzer has an entire library, or the Fetzer Institute has an entire library uh, dedicated to Fetzer. Um, and you can actually read like tons and tons and tons of articles and interviews and 
minutes of meetings, all kinds of things. And so here we can read one of one of the acolytes of the Fetzer Institute is a man named Brian C. Wilson. We can read here from an interview with Ohm Times Magazine, which we would assume is something yogi, kind of, or yogic. Um, Ohm Times Magazine. So the interviewer, Victor Furman, asks Brian in... Uh, Says uh, Brian Wilson, I'm sorry, says, Brian, in what sense was Mr. Fetzer a new ager? And Brian Wilson replies, well, we have to be careful with the term, of course, because new age has taken on a kind of pejorative meaning. But for John Fetzer, who wrote about himself as a new ager, the whole idea was that individual spiritual transformation would ultimately lead to a global spiritual transformation or the new age. The Golden Age. Remember Bailey's book was Education in the New Age, just to point that out. For John Fetzer, the idea was that spiritual practices would not only have personal benefit, but if practiced assiduously and by enough people, eventually would have a larger global impact. That's exactly the same thing, by the way, that uh, Alice Bailey and Helena Blavatsky believed. Goes on, it says, Brian Wilson goes on to say, he became a Freemason in the 1930s and carried through with that. He became a 33 degree, 33rd degree Scottish Rite Mason in, let's see, 69. From there, he got into older traditions like Hermeticism and Rosicrucianism. So he really ran the gamut of metaphysical traditions in the United States. He was a seeker who was really open to a variety of different metaphysical traditions. Now, let's pause before we read a little bit more from this interview with Brian Wilson. He didn't run the gamut of metaphysical traditions in the United States. He was a 33rd degree Scottish Rite Mason. He was a devotee of Alice Bailey's theosophy and Blavatsky's theosophy. And he got into older traditions like Hermeticism and Rosicrucianism, which is actually kind of the same thing. So, no, he didn't. He was a. He really ran the gamut of occult traditions that had underground popularity, both in Europe and the United States, going back maybe to the 13th century or earlier in Europe and cresting in Europe, um, probably in the era of Hegel, uh, the, the late 18th and early 19th century in the Swabian region of Germany. Uh, it was kind of a peak of that, but it was popular throughout the UK. Blavatsky is credited with bringing back a kind of resurgence, a revival of it. And uh, Alice Bailey was uh, credited with being the mother of the new age. And so this is the gamut of metaphysical traditions being referred to. It's magic. It's occultism. And that's what Fetzer was into. Marxism and Hegelianism are also, in fact, influenced by exactly these lines of thought. If you go back and read Hegel, if you know what you're looking at, or if you read, say, Glenn Alexander McGee's analysis of Hegel in this regard, uh, Hegel was heavily influenced by Freemasonry, though there's no evidence he ever became a Mason himself. Hermeticism and Rosicrucianism were central to Hegel's philosophy. Marxism is strongly influenced and derived from Hegel and also Hermeticism quite directly. So when we get to transformative SEL, which has adopted Hegelian and especially Marxist vision of critical consciousness and cobbled it into the occult new age thing that's at the heart of SEL, it's not that weird to see that this is all part and parcel of one broader occult project. So this is why you're starting to get the feeling, I hope, why I'm saying what the F is social emotional learning. 
Like, what the hell's going on here? But let's continue from Wilson. This is actually earlier in the Ohm Times Magazine interview. He says the other thing that interested him, meaning John Fetzer, about this was that a lot of the people who claimed to be contactees of UFOs in the early 1950s, when this was a positive experience, were people who actually came out of theosophical backgrounds. John Fetzer himself had become very interested in a variety of different versions of theosophy during the 1940s. And so the contactees would talk about UFOs regarding ascended masters and great brotherhood because they were theosophists, right? They're wizards. They're occultists. And their mission was essentially to catalyze a spiritual transformation of the world. And I think this is an idea that really caught on with John Fetzer for those two two reasons. Theosophy is a religious tradition that developed in the United States in the late 19th century, and it was really the brainchild of a Russian immigrant named Helena Blavatsky. Blavatsky was interested in a variety of different issues, specifically the harmony between science and religion. She was also fascinated with evolution, and she was fascinated with Eastern thought, Hindu thought, and Buddhist thought. Theosophy was an attempt to marry these various aspects into a viable religious tradition, and the ideas caught on. A lot of Hindu ideas or South Asian ideas, religious ideas like reincarnation and karma, really entered the American consciousness through theosophical groups. One of the main things in theosophy was the idea that there were masters or groups of masters who were in communication with certain people and directing the kind of conscious evolution of humanity with the idea that humanity was always evolving toward higher and higher levels of consciousness, which is, by the way, what hermeticists also believe. We also pick up a few other facts, not just from, um, not just from, from this Ohm Times magazine. There was a book about John Fetzer summarizing him, and it, it's very peculiar, his spiritualism. Um, John Fetzer believed that he, in fact, with reincarnation, had been reincarnated many times. He had lived through many past lives, going back to uh, Atlantis, actually. And those include, some of his past lives include St. Paul and Thomas Jefferson. So he believed that he was a reincarnation of St. Paul and Thomas Jefferson, among others, going all the way back to his time in Atlantis. He also believed that whoever he reincarnated into again and again always had some big spiritual mission to transform reality and history. Um, Kind of funny that this is how he saw himself. This is kind of not just crazy, but self-aggrandizing crazy. It's that special kind where, um, in a very Sam Harris way, you're addicted to wanting to become enlightened so you can be better than everybody else, right? Um, The Detroit uh, Free Press, as I mentioned before, reported that Fetzer made many of his decisions, including on how to run the Tigers, his business decisions, um, via a Ouija board. Um, not to mention also the channeling with, say, the Archangel Michael. Uh, he also instructed the pitchers of the Detroit Tigers to talk to the ball and to will it to manifest itself into the strike zone so that they could win games. In 1993, the Washington Post reported in January of 93 that the Fetzer Institute, this was again after Fetzer's death in 91 at this point, was retooling itself to push its spirituality message into education, into wellness, into full mind-body health, and into mindfulness meditation. 
all of which show up in SEL. So this is right before January 93. It was about a year before SEL emerges out of the Fetzer Institute. So what about SEL? What do they say about it? Well, if we go to the Fetzer Institute's website, they say the Fetzer Institute's commitment to, the, to whole child development is decades long. In the 1990s, Fetzer pay, played a significant funding and organizing role in the groundbreaking research for social and emotional learning and has been a longtime supporter of the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, that is CASEL. Now, 30 years later, we're working to add pluralistic spiritual development into the whole child curricula. And now we can turn back, if we wanted to, I won't reread it, to that quote from Alice Bailey at the very beginning. Alice Bailey's New Age Occultism, the mother of the New Age, as it, or New Age Occultism in, in the United States and in the maybe the UK. She started out as a Brit and ended up in the US. Um, but, but Fetzer read her invocation, her great invocation. I'll read the whole thing in, in a few minutes. Uh, at the end of all of his official meetings, owned all of Alice Bailey's books and read them frequently as part of his theosophical studies. He was a big fan of Alice Bailey, who had similar ideas to what looks like social-emotional learning. Then he promotes social-emotional learning and so on. Going through the Fetzer Spiritual Library website, there's lots of interesting little tidbits. Here's one document indicates, as for theosophy, John owned and read the multi-volume works of Alice Bailey. Theosophy's strong influence, as well as that of Freemasonry, can be seen in John's 1967 speech and essay, This I Believe, plus his in his 1973 preamble to the Fetzer Foundation, as well as in his 1971 America's, or sorry, American's Agony. I think it's supposed to be America's Agony, but I'm not quite sure. In each of these writings, the theosophical, that is Blavatsky, notion of a, quote, central spiritual son is preeminent. You see in another document, or maybe it's the same one, actually. This one's the same one. And of course, Alice Bailey's Great Invocation, which the Monday Night Group recited at the end of each of their gatherings. It begins, quote, From the point of light within the mind of God, let light stream forth into the minds of men. Let light descend on earth. Also in these set of documents, we find a uh, summary of John Fetzer's final statement of principles that he gave before he died. He wrote it in 1989, died in 1991. And this is summarized by another guy, Thomas Beaver. And he wrote, Fetzer, as we know, was a long-time sincere student of several mystical traditions and mystical writings. In his earlier and middle adult years, he studied masonry, theosophy, particularly the writings of Alice Bailey, and the theosophy-influenced book Masters of the Far East which were the sources of his spiritual philosophy, as written in This I Believe, American's Agony, and the John E. Fetzer Foundation Preamble. In another document, Thomas Beaver is trying to make sense of Fetzer's statements of belief, a lot of which was Masonic, but some of which doesn't fit with Masonry. And these statements were uh, kind of the summaries of This I Believe and American's Agony. And what Beaver wrote was, the theosophical influences on John had evidently come from two different sources, which seemed to require some further research as well, from Helena Blavatsky, who founded Theosophy in 1875, and from Alice Bailey, who joined the organization in 1917, but five years later split off to form her own organization, the Lucius Trust. That's spelled L-U-C-I-S, the Lucius Trust. We will come back to that. 
there's an interview done with the same Thomas Beaver. Is it is that right? His first name was Beaver. Thomas Beaver? Is it Thomas? Please say it's Thomas. Yeah, Thomas Beaver. Uh, John Fetzer's vision for the Institute that is also in the John Fetzer Spiritual Library. And this is a little bit longer. He writes, To me, the vision that, J- that John had was based upon a series of things. Based upon his past metaphysical studies, based upon his relationship with Jim Gordon at the time. Jim was doing channelings for John. I guess you'd call them channelings. He wasn't channeling a being or something, but he would go into a light trance and get information for John on people, on the Institute, you know, the whole thing, the gamut of things. So John had Alice Bailey books in the house. By the way, is this where it says the Archangel Michael? I don't know, but it does say that somewhere. We'll get to that. So John had Alice Bailey books in the house. We would read those. We would read those even while he was into this other meditation practice in those final years. We would still grab the Alice Bailey books and read things from those. He and I would. So to me, it was pretty clear, just in my opinion, at least the way I saw it, um, that John was doing whatever he thought capital S Spirit was telling him to do. That simply he had put himself, his legacy, his vision, his resources into the service of God or of spirit. And he was trying to do whatever he was told to do, whether it was in his own meditation, whether it was in coming through Jim Gordon's channelings. To me, his vision was simply uh, um, a very standard, typical New Age vision of being one of the persons who gives himself over to spirit, to use him and to use his resources as they saw fit. But, and the key component of that for me, as far as I... uh, as far as how I knew John and saw how he operated, was that that information was to come from the other side, from the spiritual world, from spiritual sources. And his people, his group, their mission was to tap into that, to be receptive to that as a group. You know, the whole theosophical thing with Alice Bailey was it took a group. It took a group focusing on the second coming of Maitreya. Did I say that right? Maitreya? Of the, of the, which is like the super messiah or their version of the second coming of Christ, to invoke that. That was Alice Bailey's idea. And I think John had that from the 70s, you know, in the early and in the early 80s. So that was it to me. I don't think he particularly cared if it was mind, body, spirit, health, or if it was, which is what he based SEL stuff on, by the way, or if it was channeling scientific instruments and equipment from the other side, from the astral plane to this plane. He had a whole variety of interests in that regard, but his interest specifically was to be open and receptive and get a group of people uh, as his team to be open and receptive to doing whatever capital S spirit told them to do and to put themselves consciously in the service of spirit and to consciously ask for guidance and for what to do and then to go to go to do it. I think it was as simple as that. And let me just remind you, Jim Gordon would channel, for example, the Archangel Michael in these light trances. Let's shift now. We've got, okay, so what we've got now is a social-emotional learning emerged out of the Fetzer Institute, which was dedicated to all this crap. There's these weird, odd things now that we've seen so far connecting at the writings of Alice Bailey to John Fetzer, John Fetzer's vision, and all of that to social-emotional learning. They all sound similar enough. We know that Castle and social-emotional learning emerged from the Fetzer Institute. We know that the Fetzer Institute brags about this or claims it. We know that they claim it. And we know 
that its vision was similar to John Fetzer's vision, which we know is derived from Masonry, Blavatsky, and especially Alice Bailey. And Alice Bailey wrote this book, Education in the New Age, which says that the education of the future should look an awful lot like what we see as social-emotional learning. It should be the science of right human relations infused into all of the subjects to raise, as she puts it throughout the book, better citizens, or in fact, the new race of humanity. And what we heard, we'll get back to Alice Bailey, but I want to sidestep and go into what we just heard about this thing, the Lucius Trust that Alice Bailey set up. So Blavatsky was in charge of the Theosophical Society. Bailey joins this in, say, 1917 or whatever, five years later, four years later. In 1922, she creates the Lucius Trust, sort of. Um, We'll come back to that in a second. After getting kicked out of the Theosophical Society for doing her own channelings. Now, as a side note, uh, Alice Bailey was married to Foster Bailey, and Foster Bailey was a 32nd degree Freemason, not a 33rd degree like John Fetzer. So Alice Bailey creates this Lucius, Lucius is pronounced trust. Um, So here's a brief history of that. She didn't create the Lucius Trust initially. In 1922, which would be five years or so later, from 17, when she got kicked out of the Theosophical Society of Blavatsky, Alice Bailey created a publishing company to publish the books that she was writing about her own theosophical beliefs and channelings. And that publishing company was called the Lucifer Publishing Company. And that seemed a little on the nose because she created that in 1922. And in 1924, she renamed it to the uh, Lucius Publishing Company. And then sometime not long after, it started to receive very large amounts of money. Um, For example, she thanks in some of her books generous donations from the Rockefellers. Apparently the Fords were involved. More recently, long after Alice Bailey died, of course, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation were involved in giving them lots of money. Um, but in 1924, she renamed the Lucifer Publishing Company, the Lucius Publishing Company, that's L-U-C-I-S. And then when it started to get lots of money, it got reincorporated as the Lucius Trust. You can go to their website, luciustrust.org. And then you might go to the contact page because you're like, well, let's go to the contact page and see what's there. And it says their physical address, which is at 866 United Nations Plaza. And you think, Isn't that the address of the United Nations building? It is. So the Lucius Trust's primary headquarters is in the United Nations building in New York City, which is peculiar. Why? Why is it there? Why is it the only religious thing there? Why do they have a Lucius Lucius Trust-sponsored meditation room that's shaped like a pyramid laying on its side 33 feet long 18 feet square at the door, 6 feet square at the far end with a huge iron altar that's allegedly connected to the Earth's magnetic lines under the UN building. Why? Why is it there? What's going on? Why are they considered one of the only um, high-level consultants to the United Nations Uh, that's a religious organization? Which they are. Why? uh, And this is all easily verifiable. Um, within just a few minutes, if you go look it up, why it, why, why I'm, I'm perplexed by this. Um, why is it that the Lucius trust is the primary print publisher for the United Nations when they have print materials published? 
because it was created as the Lucifer Publishing Company specifically to publish the occult writings of Alice Bailey. Why? What's going on? Turns out they have offices in Geneva and London also. The, the office in London is at Three Whitehall Place. I recently went to London. I stayed in a hotel that's located at Two Whitehall Place. So I went next door to try to visit the Lucis Trust. I did not visit the Lucis, Lucis Trust. I was received with suspicion as to why I wanted to visit the Lucis Trust and turned away. Um, so that didn't work out. Uh, why? 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 That's across the street from Parliament. What's going on? But that's the Lucius Trust. That's the history. That's Alice Bailey. Okay, we'll come back to this. This book that I'm seriously concerned about, given social emotional learning, is called Education in the New Age. So on the copyright page, we're going to read quite a lot of this book now. It says, published by the Lucius Publishing Companies, the first and only publisher of the 24 books of Alice A. Bailey. Then it lists the other, or actually all 24 books of Alice Bailey, so we can hear what their titles are to get a sense of what kind of crap Alice Bailey published. Remember, this publishing company is also the publishing company for the United Nations, and it's located at 866 United Nations Plaza in the United Nations building with an altar connected to the Earth's magnetic core or some bullcrap. Initiation, Human and Solar, that's one. Letters on Occult Meditation. The Consciousness of the Atom. A Treatise on Cosmic Fire. The Light of the Soul. The Soul and Its Mechanism. From Intellect to Intuition. A Treatise on White Magic. From Bethlehem to Calvary. Discipleship in the New Age, Volume 1 and 2. Problems of Humanity, The Reappearance of Christ, The Destiny of the Nations, Glamour, a Word, sorry, Glamour, a World Problem, Telepathy in the Etheric Vehicle, The Unfinished Autobiography, Education in the New Age, which is the one we're going to focus on, The Externalization of the Hierarchy, and then her main work, a Treatise on the Seven Rays, Volumes 1 through 5, Volume 1, Esoteric Psychology, Volume 2, Esoteric Psychology, I don't know why they're both that, Volume 3, Esoteric Astrology, Volume 4, Esoteric Healing, and Volume 5, The Rays and the Initiations. And I had the pleasure of reading Education in the New Age all the way through and skimming into a little bit of these other books. And what the heck is this book? Or maybe given the title of this, WTF is SEL, what the F is Education in the New Age? This is a weird book. I don't know how to actually summarize it. Um, so maybe I'll just start by telling you what the New Age is. So it's Education in the New Age. This will frame up your thoughts about it a little bit. It's, it's the Age of Aquarius. Um, see, we have left the Piscean Age and we've entered from Pisces. Pisces, like astrology, and we're entering into the age of Aquarius. You know, like the song? The dawning of the age of Aquarius. Yeah, that. Okay, so that, that, it's unapologetically mystical, unapologetically occult. She says repeatedly that it's an occult book, that it's an esoteric book. What does esoteric mean? It means a combination of Various mystical traditions, including Kabbalah, Christian and Jewish, including Masonry, including Rosicrucianism, including Hermeticism, including Gnosticism, 
as they kind of got mixed and mashed around through the Middle Ages in Europe after the translation of the Corpus Hermeticum by Ficino, um, which, if I remember correctly, was in the 13th century, but it might have been in the 15th century. I can't remember for sure. 15th, I guess, is probably more right. Okay. The book is whack. It's really whack. Instead of just summarizing it, though, I'll just start reading to you from it. And it's, I just want to impress that it's too long to read the whole book. I can't possibly do it justice. Everything's about like yoga sounding or Hindu sounding words. And like this whole vision of a new age talks about, you know, kind of incorporating and going beyond the level of Marxism explicitly. But it also starts out with this weird channeling from the Tibetan, who is identified elsewhere, but not in the book, by the name Jwal Kul, which that is D-J-W-A-H-L. And then last name, K-H-U-L. I have no idea if I've said that right. This actual, this, this weird forward, this statement from the, the Tibetan doesn't say much, but it, it roots the whole thing in um, hermeticism pretty clearly. I'll read you a little bit that comes from the beginning and the end of the couple pages by the Tibetan. Suffice it to say, it starts, that I am a Tibetan disciple of a certain degree, and this tells you but little. For all are disciples from the humblest aspirant up to and beyond the Christ himself. I live in a physical body like other men on the borders of Tibet, and at times, from the exoteric sorry, standpoint, preside over a large group of Tibetan lamas when my other duties permit. It is this fact that has caused it to be reported that I am an, that I am an abbot of this particular lamasary. Those associated with me in the work of the hierarchy, that's with a capital H, and all true, true disciples are associated in this work, know be my still another name and office. AAB, that's Alice A. Bailey, knows who I am and recognizes me by two of my names. And then that's the, how it begins and how it ends. If the teaching conveyed called forth Sorry, if the teaching conveyed calls forth a response from the illumined mind of the worker in the world and brings a flashing forth of his intuition, then let that teaching be accepted, but not otherwise. If the statements meet with eventual corroboration or are deemed true under the test of the, quote, law of correspondences, then that is well and good. But should this not be so, let not the student accept what is said. And it's claimed that this was channeled or written down in August 1934, which is when I assume Bailey actually wrote this book, but I don't know that. Um, so this firmly, the law of correspondences is kind of the key hermetic teaching. Its actual expression is as above, so below, and as below, so above. But it's the law of correspondences. Um, Christians who are kind of hip to heresy will recognize that it's kind of a demonic saying. Um, and so there that is. And this whole thing, like when it, you know, if it calls forth in the illuminated mind, then good, and then we'll use it. And if it doesn't, then no, don't use it. That again is you have, this is initiate society. This is esoteric or occult stuff. And so it's Gnosticism. It's rooted in Gnosticism. It's rooted with a lowercase g, not the Christian Gnostic stuff, but rather the belief that you have secret divine revealed wisdom on the true nature of reality, 
uh, that elevates you spiritually above others. And then this book, then Carrot goes on after this thing by the Tibetan for a couple of pages to the full great invocation, which is signed by Alice Bailey, which is the same thing that Fetzer used to close his Monday meetings of, I guess, his most devoted. The whole thing, which we heard a little bit of earlier, goes from the point of light within the mind of God. Let light stream forth into the minds of men. Let light descend on earth. From the point of love within the heart of God, let love stream forth into the hearts of men. May Christ return to earth. From the center where the will of God is known, let, uh, let purpose guide the little wills of men, the purpose which the masters know and serve. From the center which we call the race of men, let the plan of love and light work out. And may it seal the door where evil dwells. Let the light and love and power restore the plan on earth. By the way, this is straight-up Gnostic, hermetic nonsense. Bailey remarks following the invocation, The above invocation or prayer does not belong to any person or group, but to all humanity. The beauty and strength of this invocation lies in its simplicity and in its expression of a certain central truths, Sorry, and, and its expression of certain central truths which all men innately and normally accept. The truth of the existence of a basic intelligence with a capital I, to whom, capital W, we vaguely give the name of God. The truth that behind all outer seeming, the, motiv the motivating power of the universe is love, capital L. The truth that a great individuality, capital I, came to earth, called by Christians the Christ, and embodied that love so we could understand. The truth that both love and intelligence are effects of what is called the will of God. And finally, the self-evident truth that only through humanity itself can the divine plan work out. And that last part's really important. I'm not going to go into the whole hermetic creation myth and the role of humanity in making the divine plan come about. But that's, let, suffice it to say for the moment, that is the core of the hermetic occult belief. That there is a divine plan. Certain humans can become initiated to know it. That's a form of gnosis, but it's not the same necessarily as Gnosticism. And that they can do through doing what we might call doing the work, work out the divine plan and bring it into fruition. They can build the kingdom here on earth. And at which point God will recognize that he's God. If you want to hear more about this, um, I strongly recommend you go listen to the workshop series I did in Phoenix in June on the theology of Marxism. I talk a bit about the creation view of Hermeticism and how it works and how it latches onto Hegelian and Marxist thought about completing man, society, and nature. It's the same damn thing, um, but on a deeper or higher or whatever we want to call it, spiritual aspect instead of kind of the more crude materialist aspect that we are used to with Marxism. Woke is this. This is woke, that the self-evident truth that only through humanity itself can the divine plan work out. That's when they say do the work. That's what they mean. I'm not exaggerating. So this book is then followed, or the, after this invocation is then follows a preface that I want to read the whole thing to you, even though it's long. It's called Educational Trends in a World Crisis. It's written by Oliver L. Reiser. He was a professor of philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh, and this was written in 1953. So, like I said, since Alice Bailey died in 1949, it must have been added after her death and before the publication. 
Now, this is several pages. It's about four pages long, actually. I'm going to read the whole thing to you, and then we're going to read a whole bunch of parts of Bailey, especially from the first chapter. Preface. Educational Trends in a World Crisis. This book on educational philosophy comes at a time of crisis. For the theme that runs through the critical thinking in the field of educational theory today, remember 1953, is characterized by deep concern over both the preservation and the enrichment of human values. Can we maintain our democratic individualism in the face of the standardizing forces of the Western machine civilization, which may also engulf the Eastern world? Can we offset the totalitarianisms, which deify the materialism of an increasingly industrial culture? In May of this year, 1953, I attended a two-day seminar in Chicago sponsored by the Center for the Study of Liberal Education for Adults, a subdivision of the Ford Foundation. Get that? Created to express the growing concern of our times for the spiritual basis of our civilization. In the statement of the problem which our group was to study, education in a democratic society, we were informed as follows. Quote, education must meet the needs of the human spirit. It must assist persons to develop a satisfactory, a satisfactory personal philosophy and sense of values, to cultivate tastes for literature, music, and the arts, to grow in ability to analyze problems and arrive at thoughtful conclusions. End quote. This statement demands a re-examination of our educational theory and practice. A survey of current developments proves that, at long last, the professional educators are clarifying a common philosophy and are consciously striving to delineate a theory of education adequate to the new world that is emerging. In such a philosophy, three fundamental needs must be met. One, a psychological theory of the human person to be, quote, educated. Two, a social theory of the kind of society one is trying to create or preserve as a suitable home for the cultural ideals promulgated, and three, a worldview or cosmology, a theory of man's place in the universe in which man is spectator and actor. Okay, the psychology, we got to transform education for the new era. It needs a psychology, a sociology, and a cosmology in worldview and ideology. In other words, Our problem, he says, is to attain the kind of overall synthesis that Marxism and neo-scholasticism provide for their followers, but to get this uh, by the freely chosen cooperative methods that John Dewey advocated. In the broadest terms, such a worldview will make possible a planetary civilization by integrating whatever trans-temporal and trans-spatial truths about man and the universe we can extract from all regional cultures in their local times and places. By the way, that sounds better in the original German. It is Aufheben. It is sublate. It is Rousseau's savages made to live in cities. These universal principles will then provide the norms for education in the New Age, as the Tibetan terms it. Imagine agreeing to write a foreword to this book. The world today suffers from a cultural provincialism based on the dualism of an outward-looking, objective attitude of the Western world and an inwardness or subjectivity of Oriental societies. Each of these civilizations in its extreme form is overbalanced in its own direction. In harmonious living, man must integrate both ideals to achieve wholeness for himself and his world. This, it seems to me, is one important theme of the present work. 
So Alfhaben of East and West, China and the West, have to be synthesized into a single, not objective, not subjective, but dialectical fusion of objective and subjective. Okay. For the future, the remedy for the social schisms and psychological fissions that have handicapped and obstructed our modern efforts to overcome the divisions of humanity lies in a restoration of unity of principles upon which an integration of human values and achievements can be attempted. The educational, uh, so we're going we're gonna to unify the principles so that we can have a full integration of human values and achievements. The educational implications of this development are clear. As the Tibetan indicates, on subjective levels, we must provide for the resynthesis of human personality. How about that? You could, you know, maybe do social emotional learning to achieve that. And for the overcoming of the double consciousness that has resulted from the cultural fission, which we have made the, quote, self-negation of the peaceful civilization of the Orient, the overpowering concept of its culture, and the aggressive, quote, individualism of the Occident, the ideal of Western man. That's the synthesis of East and West. Accordingly, we need not only the political synthesis of a world federation in which the Eastern and Western hemispheres function like the right and left lobes of man's brain, with the seat of the world brain serving as the point of decussation of the planetary nerves, but we also need a planetary way of life, a planetary ethics, a planetary way of feeling to supply the powerful drive that we shall require for the great tasks that lie ahead of us. So what we need is a center that serves as a world brain, which, by the way, is the thing that they say that they're going to build with AI and the Internet of Bodies. That's literally what they call it, the world brain. So we need that, and it needs to be centered on the idea of creating planetary way of life, planetary ethics, planetary way of feeling, so that we can overcome the challenges of the future. Oh, wait, wait, I went to Klaus there. The time to resynthesize the objective and subjective, the exo, or sorry, extrovert and the introvert civilizations, and to achieve a great orchestration of culture is now. Japan was not aggressive until the country learned the trick from the West. Before her doors were forced, her arts and philosophy were in tune with the Oriental tradition. When she adopted Western technology, she threw overboard her ancient culture. What happened in Japan can happen in the rest of the Orient. But whereas Japan was a relatively small country, China, India, and their neighbors are vast and populous. Heaven help us if they reenact the history of Japan. Our activity in the resynthesizing of the world must include, through our own efforts to understand and appreciate, an appeal to the Orient, to preserve and to develop the fundamental values in its regional cultures, While the West is seeking the principles upon which peaceful and fruitful living can be founded, the East may provide us with the counterbalance to our aggressive materialism. This is so, so, so world economic forum. If this new synthesis is to restore cultural and spiritual unity in mankind, the Occidental world will have to acquire humility when it turns to the Orient. Oh, it's supposed to be the century of China, right? The Oriental world will not, because of its inherent nature, generate the physical energy to go to the West. We Westerners went to the East in search of markets, outlets for the products of our mechanical power, and we must return to our own world, magnetized by the subjective energies of the East and conscious of it. Our aggressive commercial penetration of Oriental lands and peoples 
has had the end result of bringing the literature, the philosophy, and the arts of the East into the West as uncalculated dividends. We can, if we choose, make use of the vast heritage of Oriental culture available to us, even in our neighborhood libraries. Our main hope of survival in this highly polarized world lies in a prodigious effort at synthesis of the two cultures while there is still time. Should the Orient deny us that time and decide to meet us merely on our own grounds, then this might write finis to the story for all of us, East and West. During our industrial and expansionist age, there have been increasing evidences of the permeating power of Oriental thought in the fields of science, philosophy, and the arts of the West. Psychosomatic medicine, parapsychology, Jung's analytical psychology are only a few indications of contemporary, inwardly-oriented researches. The re-entry of the spiritual factor in life and education is something more than a recrudescence of some earlier forms of Christian ideology. In this education for the New Age, a type of East-West philosophy presented by the Tibetan will find its proper setting. This is a philosophy professor. The Tibetan. Are you kidding me? Here we have the elements of a complete theory as follows. A. Subjective planning. A theory of the creative self-development of the individual. B. Objective planning. A theory of the good of society for human persons to live in. Oh, so we're going to have the creative self-development of the individual so that he can become a subjective being. And it's going to be combined with objective planning to where we build out the good society around them for the greater good. Uh Uh-huh. The psychological and social implications of the education for the new age must be stated as explicitly as possible. The next step is to test the validity of the principles in concrete applications. The testing must be done in terms of operational techniques relevant to the Hindu psychology, rather than that by Western positivistic procedures. Until this program has been given a fair trial, it is a waste of time to attempt to prejudge the issue, just like SEL. Until we just implement it everywhere, we can't say it possibly isn't a bad idea to implement. Yet it is not necessary to consider the ancient East and modern West approaches as two mutually exclusive alternatives. In some some instances, sorry, the approaches are merely two, quote, languages for stating universal truths about human nature, and we are not faced with either an either-or antithesis. No, there's a dialectic. They're actually parts of the same greater whole if we just lift up our vision, Alf Haben, and see it from another position. Intertranslation may reduce the strangeness of terminology. For example, the Tibetans view that, quote, meditation is thinking things through is good Dewey doctrine. As the elements of unfamiliarity diminish, understanding is facilitated. That the research project so briefly sketched is not some vague philosophical fantasy, but an urgent and immediate need is indicated by a document drawn up by the Department for Cultural Activities of UNESCO, which formulated the theme for discussion in these terms, quote, the concept of man and the philosophy of education in East and West. Here it is stated, UNESCO could, quote, sorry, quote, UNESCO could not remain indifferent to this problem of East and West. It was bound to face it squarely in the present circumstances of the world brought about by the increasingly rapid process of unification, the reduction of distances, the growing importance of technology, the gradual attainment by all peoples of political independence and international responsibility, and above all, the disquiet and perplexity 
prevailing among the two great civilizations of yesterday, ready to give birth to the one civilization of tomorrow, but cowering under the threat of a world crisis far beyond their capacity to control. End quote. Let's add context. This is from the 1950s. China has already had its communist revolution, which took place in 1949. The CCP is re-educating people in prisons, as described, for example, by Robert J. Lifton. China is communist in this story. Russia, or the Soviet Union, still exists, is communist. The East is communism. The West, and then there's India, the, the West is capitalism. These are the two great civilizations of yesterday that are to be seen as dialectical pairs. So that's what UNESCO says. In an article on Our Goal is Unity in the Free World of October 1944, Dr. Albert Einstein regretfully took note of, quote, an odious materialistic attitude toward life which leads to the predominance of an unrestrained selfishness, end quote. But how shall this materialism and selfishness of our culture be corrected by geodesies in the space-time manifold of relativity theory? This would be cold comfort from a warm heart, and Einstein does not offer this way out. Indeed, Einstein offers no clear solution. The simple truth is that the only counterweight to, quote, materialism is, quote, idealism. And this must come out of the very heart of science as an evolutionary development. Oh no, materialism and idealism, the exact same thing that we read in, say, the critical race theory books, have to be dialectically synthesized. Researchers who know that the uh, who know the data of science must take our knowledge about nature and synthesize it into a body of integrated principles to establish the Pythagorean Platonic Bruno cosmology. By the way, Giordano Bruno was a hermeticist. That's why they burned him at a stake. A world picture similar to the pantheism of Eastern thought, wherein man can reverence nature because nature is worthy of awe and reverence. A humanism that is exclusively anthropocentric is overbalanced and is in need of a world philosophy in which the infinite and eternal cosmos yields the other pivot for the axis around which the new synthesis can move and grow. It sounds a lot like the Archimedean point for which you can transform the world that Herbert Marcuse talks about about a decade later. There is a remedy for, quote, the sickness of modern man, and many of its constituents are found in this book on the education of the future. The implementation of the principles involved in uh, is the work of humanity itself. That its theories are not beyond the need and grasp of contemporary educationists is borne out by the fact that the steps are already taken in several places for setting up of experiments in education which are to express the need for synthesis. As an example of this development, there is the, quote, self-survey project financed by the Ford Foundation out of which has come a proposal for a Department of Integrating Studies in the University of Pittsburgh. Part of the, st it's part of the statement presenting this experiment reads as follows, quote, It has been proposed that a new department outside the present three distribution fields of the humanities, the social sciences, and the natural sciences, and different from the departments within existing distribution fields, be established at the University of Pittsburgh. This new department shall be termed the Department of Unified Studies, it shall be concerned with seeking the interrelationships between various subject matter disciplines already available in the offerings of the university. The main objective is to cultivate the habit of reflective synthesis and find or create a body of wisdom for human evolution and personal self-development. Let's pause. Remember all that stuff in the 
podcast series I did called The Strange Death of the University, where I talked about John Henry Newman and the idea of a theology binding and unifying a university or any set of field of thought in pointing it in a particular direction. Uh Aha, Department of Unified Studies. But that's exactly what those documents are talking about by forwarding interdisciplinarity and in particular transdisciplinarity as a new kind of unified program. But what do they suggest in 2022-3 will be the basis for that Department of Unified Studies? Well, of course, what it would actually be is sustainability and it will require the arts, humanities, and social sciences to move into the natural sciences so that they can dictate what that looks like, you know, for human evolution and personal self-development. Carrying on, quote, since unified interpretation and understanding is not a science on its own right, but a synoptic comprehension of antecedent bodies of concepts and principles, P.S., that's what John Henry Newman said constitutes a theology, this department shall not offer degrees in its own area or, quote, field. The Department of Unified Studies is primarily a service department to the students and faculty members carrying on their primary but not more important activities in the more specialized areas of study. Until contemporary times, there has been little need for such an adjunct to our institutions of higher learning, but with the increase in size of our specialized bodies of knowledge to the point where we are burying ourselves under the mountains of information and data, the time has come to take seriously the problem of finding out what all this knowledge means. This is the establishment of a theology, by the way, and it's New Agers creating it at a university in the 1950s. If the university cannot synthesize the overall implications, with the help of the United Nations, if the university cannot synthesize the overall implications of modern learning, it will abdicate its historic role of providing universal principles for enlightened individuals seeking the benefits of the good life. Oh, a theology. This urgent need here requires explicit statement and recognition if we are consciously to design a solution to the problem. The broad purpose of the advancement of learning, to use Bacon's phrase, is to throw light on our four basic questions of human existence. One, what is man? Two, what kind of physical universe or cosmos is it that man inhabits? Three, by, which pro- by what processes of evolution did the human species emerge from the matrix of nature so that man could become the self-conscious and creative individual he now is? And four, knowing something about the cosmos and about human nature, what is the best kind of society for man's progressive self-evolution? Again, this is a theology, guys, that they were establishing in 1950s, the early 1950s, in the universities under the auspices of UNESCO and uh, New Age occultism, just like in the documents we're reading in 2022 and 3, and shocked that it's happening. In seeking answers to these questions and providing students with the stimuli and and data necessary to the formulation of their own answers, the instructors in the Department of Unified Studies will not pose as experts in integration along no transdisciplinary right along with interested students the faculty members will be seekers after synthesis seekers mhm to illustrate the type of courses contemplated the following possibilities are suggested one the sociology of no- sociology of knowledge well that's woke that's literally what woke is okay two the interrelationships of religion philosophy science and art Three, information theory, cybernetics, and semantics. Four, the history and philosophy of science. Five, the history and presuppositions of the democratic theory of government and ideology. Six, 
contributions of biology, sociology, and psychiatry to human welfare and progress. 7. The unity of knowledge. 8. The evolution of value systems from primitive culture to modern industrial civilization. The first prerequisites of all such courses is that they shall interrelate not less than three so-called departments of study. They'll be interdisciplinary, maybe transdisciplinary. Thus, the students and faculty will be encouraged to search for vision, quote, seeing life steadily and as a whole, end quote. The Tibetans' seed principles will find prepared soil in such experimental fields. So that's quite the preface by a Department of Philosophy professor, Oliver L. Reiser, from University of Pittsburgh, written in 1953, leading into this crazy-ass book. Okay, so that was, actually it was six pages, not four pages, I apologize. So now let's look at Bailey herself, because if that was crazy to you, remember, this is supposed, that, that Department of Unified Studies is supposed to be somehow related to the entire education in the New Age. And the education in the New Age reads peculiarly like SEL, but then it informed the Fetzer Institute, which created SEL. Just to remind you why we're doing this, WTF is SEL. We haven't heard anything yet, and I'm actually going to cut out almost, I'm going to read a whole lot from chapter one of Bailey's Education in the New Age, but I'm going to cut out a lot because this book is long and it's literally batshit insane. I strongly encourage you to go read it and gape in disbelief that, first of all, a professor citing the Tibetan would have written that unless he was some kind of a communist or crackpot. I'm going to try to be pretty selective here, but there's, there's a lot to try to get through. So we're going to start off with Bailey's Purpose, Alice Bailey. We're reading from the, from the book Education in the New Age, reading from chapter one, which is titled The Objective of the New Education. And here's how she starts off. She says, this presentation might be regarded as concerning itself with three different aspects of one general theme, which is that of the new and coming educational methods and ideas. The objective is to elucidate the cultural unfoldment of the race and to consider the next step to be taken in the mental development of humanity. Teaching, if true, must be in line with the past and must provide scope for endeavor in the present and must also hold out further enlightenment for those who have succeeded or are succeeding in attaining the indicated goals. There must be a spiritual future indicated. It is that which is required now. The word, quote, spiritual does not refer to religious matters, so-called. All activity which drives the human being forward towards some form of development, physical, emotional, mental, intuitional, social, if it is in advance of his present state, is essentially spiritual in nature and is indicative of the livingness of the inner divine entity. The spirit of man is undying. It forever endures, progressing from point to point and stage to stage upon the path of evolution. That's a proper noun. Unfolding steadily and sequentially the divine attributes and aspects. The question might here be asked. Why is it of value to consider giving time to that which lies as yet in the future? I would reply by reminding you that, quote, as a man thinketh, so is he. This is a truism and a platitude of occultism. Therefore, what is true of the individual is also true of the group, as below, so above. And as a group thinks, 
so does it eventually react. As a group thinks, so does it eventually react. As the group thought waves penetrate into the mental atmosphere of humanity, men become impressed, and the inaugurating view of the new ways of living and developing proceeds with increased facility. In other words, the inversion of praxis that Marx talked about. As above, so below. Okay, this is way less crazy than this book gets. But after complaining, I'm going to skip a bunch right now. After complaining briefly that education up to this point has been backwards looking because it actually teaches things like facts instead of forward looking, it focuses on things like training the memory and logic, learning facts, becoming a productive citizen. Bailey goes into laying out what a future education should also look like. She says education has three major objectives from the angle of human development. First, as it has been grasped by many, it must make a man an intelligent citizen, a wise parent, and a controlled personality. It must enable him to play his part. Doesn't that sound intelligent citizen, wise parent, and controlled personality sounds a little bit like SEL. It must enable him to play his part in the work of the world and fit him for living peaceably and helpfully in harmony with his neighbors. Second, it must enable him to bridge the gap between the various aspects of his own mental nature. And herein lies the major emphasis of the instructions which I am now proposing to give you. Purposing, sorry, to give you. In the esoteric philosophy we are taught, as well you know. So you think that the various aspects of his mental nature, by the way, is like something normal? No, 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 no. We're going to the astral bodies. In the esoteric philosophy we are taught, as well you know, that on the mental plane there are three aspects of the mind, or that the mental creature, creature we call a man, or sorry, or of that mental creature we call a man. These three aspects constitute the most important part of his nature. One, his lower concrete mind, the reasoning principle. We might say first end, if we were to being Hegel. It is with this aspect of the man that our educational processes profess to deal. Two, the that quote, this is capitalized, that son of mind, capital S-O-N of capital M-I-N-D, that son of mind, which we call the capital ego or capital soul. This is the intelligence principle, and it is called by many names in the esoteric literature, such as the solar angel, the uh, Agnishvatas, the Christ principle, etc. With this, Religion in the past has professed to deal. So we have to now tie the reasoning principle, his lower concrete mind, to his Christ mind, which religion has dealt with. Three, the higher abstract mind, the custodian of ideas, and that which is the conveyor of illumination to the lower mind once that lower mind is in rapport with the soul. With this world of ideas, philosophy has professed to deal. We might call these three aspects the receptive mind, the mind dealt with by the psychologists, the individualized mind, or the son of mind, which is capitalized in a creepy way. If you think of mind as being what they actually see as God, and you translate mind into Greek, which is nous, and you've read the Corpus Hermeticum, and you see the son of mind, it means that your mind operates as your own Christ, just to make that really clear. And three, the illuminating mind which is the higher mind. Third, the gap between the lower mind and the soul has to be bridged, and curiously enough, humanity has always realized this and has talked, therefore, in terms of, quote, achieving unity or, quote, 
making the at one mint, not atonement, at one mint, or quote, attaining alignment. These are all attempts to express this intuitively realized truth. So that's the goal of the future education. She says also, education also should concern itself during the new age with the bridging of this gap between the three aspects of the mind, nature, between the soul and the lower mind, thus producing at one mint, again, not atonement, at one mint, between soul and personality, between the lower mind, the soul, and the higher mind. For this, the race is now ready, for the fir- and for the first time in the career of humanity, the bridging work can go forward on a relatively large scale. On this, I need not enlarge, for it concerns the technicalities of the ancient wisdom, on which I have given you much in my other books. We heard what those are like. So I don't want to dwell on a lot of this stuff, but there's so much here. The, the next whole part of this book, the chapter, it's just the first chapter, which makes up the bulk of the book, is really crazy yoga-sounding stuff and, like, Atlantis stuff. I don't even know how to describe humans are in different root races, like the Lemurians and the, the workers, and then the Atlanteans, and they're the intellectuals, and then the Aryans, and they're like the spiritual, like higher level people. But she says, quote, education is therefore the science of uh, Antakarana. I think I said that right. This science and this term is the esoteric way of expressing the truth of this bridging necessity. The Antakarana, Antakarana, I guess, I don't know, is the bridge the man builds through meditation, understanding, and the magical creative work of the soul between the three aspects of his mind nature. Therefore, the primary objectives of the coming education will be one, to produce alignment between mind and brain through a correct understanding of the inner constitution of man, particularly of the etheric body and the force centers. Two, to build or construct a bridge between the brain-mind-soul, thus producing an integrated personality, which is a steady developing expression of the indwelling soul. Remember that mind-body-spirit thing, the three sides of the Fetzer Institute goal that they inspired the creation of social-emotional learning in the first place? And the thing that we read at the very beginning is what apparently makes it attractive, a la 2003. Three, to build the bridge between the lower mind, soul, and higher mind, so that the illumination of the personality becomes possible. There's your Castle 5 put in order going around the the disc. She says, The prime function of all educators is twofold. One, to train the brain to respond intelligently to impressions coming to it via the sense apparatus, and so carrying the information about the outer tangible world. And two, to train the mind so that it can fulfill three duties. A, Deal intelligently with information relayed to it by the brain. B. Create thought forms in response to impulses emanating from the physical planes to emotional reactions set in motion by the feeling desire nature to the thought world in which the man's environment is found. Hmm. Like social emotional learning, right? Like literally social emotional learning, and C, to orient itself to the subjective spiritual self so that from a condition of potentiality, the self may emerge into active government, you know, like self-management, one of the castle five. Responsible decision-making, another one of the castle five. She says, in the first 10 years of a child's life, he is taught to deal intelligently with information coming to him via the five senses to the brain. In the next, and I'm skipping the rest of the paragraph, 
And then in the next 10 years, the mind is definitely trained to become dominant. The child is taught to rationalize his emotion, his emotional and desire impulses, and to discriminate right from the right from the wrong, the desirable from the undesirable, and the essential from the non-essential. Skipping a bit more. At the age of 17, the study of psychology will be added to the rest of the curriculum, and the nature of the soul and its relation to the world soul will be investigated. Global citizens. Meditation along suitable lines will be part of the curriculum. As life goes on, our young people will be graded into two groups. The mystical, under which, the, under which heading one would group those with religious, artistic, and the more impractical tendencies, and the occult, which would include the intellectual, scientific, and mental types. So young people in the education of the future will fall into two categories, mystical and occult. That's what she says, is the education of the future. Continuing, the time is coming when all children will be studied in the following directions. Like, let, let that one sink in. Let me just say that again. The time is coming when all children will be studied in the following directions. There's a bunch. One, astrologically, to determine the life tendencies and the per peculiar problem of the soul. Two, psychologically supplementing the best of modern psychology with a knowledge of the seven ray types, which colors Eastern psychology. So not even real psychology, by the way. We're not just going to study kids psychologically. We're going to do it in terms of occult seven ray Alice Bailey bullshit. But, it, but besides, all children will be studied, one, astrologically, two, psychologically, three, medically, with special attention to the endocrine system plus the usual modern methods in relation to eyes, teeth, and other physiological defects. The nature of the response apparatus will be carefully studied and developed. Four, vocationally, so as to place them later in life where their gifts and capacities may find fullest expression and enable them thus to fulfill their group obligations. Hmm, so they're gonna, we're going to study children astrologically, psychologically, medically, with attention to the endocrine system, and then vocationally so we can make sure to place them into the best job for the collective, like they do in communist countries. Five, spiritually. By this I mean that the apparent age of the soul under consideration will be studied, and the place on the ladder of evolution will be approximately noted. Mystical and introspective tendencies will be considered, and their apparent lack noted. Coordination will be between A, brain and the response apparatus in the outer world of phenomena, B, brain and desire impulses plus emotional reactions, C, brain and mind and the world of thought, and D, brain, mind, and soul will be carefully investigated so as to bring the entire equipment of the child latent or developed into functioning activity and to unify it into a whole into a whole child, maybe, like a whole child that you put into a whole school with a whole community. Mercy, mercy, mercy. All the seeds of SEL are here. This is a weird book for that. And then she says the third question, she's, she answers a series of questions. I'll skip the first two. The third question asks, what is the process of the unfoldment of the intellect in man? How does the higher mind manifest, if at all, in the growing years? And I'm telling you, I'm skipping an absurd amount of crazy stuff that would make your jaw drop if you thought that this was informing a major educational program that might be being implemented in every single school in America and maybe the Western world right now with billions and billions of dollars behind it and seemingly no reflection on why it's happening. 
what is the process of the unfoldment of the intellectual, the intellect in man? How does the higher mind manifest itself, if at all, in the growing years? And she says, it is not possible in the short time at our command to deal here with the history of the progress of mental development. A study, well, that's what something like Karl Marx would do. A study of its racial growth will reveal much, for every child is an epitome of the whole. Every child is an epitome of the whole. A study, for instance, of the growth of the God idea in the human consciousness would prove a profitable illustration of the phenomena of thought development. A sequence of growth might most inadequately and briefly be tabulated as follows, based upon the process of enfoldment in a human being. 1. Response to impact. The infant's sense awakened. He begins to hear and see. 2. Response to possession and to acquisitiveness. The child begins to appropriate becomes self-conscious and grasps for the personal self. Three, response to the instinct governing the animal and desire nature and to human tendencies. By the way, desire in hermeticism is the big evil. Uh, It's the thing that separates you from oneness with all everything. Okay. Four, response to the group. The child becomes aware of his environment and that he is an integral part of a whole. This is following kind of like the process of conscientization and Marxism. Five, response to knowledge. This begins with the impartation of informative facts, and so to the registration through the memory of of these facts. Thus are developed interest, correlation, synthesis, and application to the exigencies of the life. Six, response to the innate need to search. This leads to experiment on the physical plane, to introspection on the emotional plane, and to intellectual study and a love of reading or of listening, thus bringing the mind into some condition of activity. 7. Response to economic and sex pressure or to the law of survival. This forces him to use his equipment and knowledge and so take his place as a factor in the group life. Mm Mm-hmm, the group life. And to promote group welfare by some active by some aspect of active work and by the perpetuation of the species. Eight, response to pure intellectual awareness. This leads to a conscious, free use of the mind to individual thinking, to the creation of thought forms, and eventually to the steady orientation of the mind to a wider and wider field of realization and awareness. These expansions of consciousness finally bring a new factor into the field of experience, and nine, response to the thinker, that's capital T, or the soul. With the registration of this response, the man enters into his kingdom. The above and below become as one. The above and the below become as one. As above, so below. Okay. The objective and subjective worlds are unified. Soul and its mechanism function as a unit. Toward this consummation, all education should tend. So, that that's very Marxist, but that's not because she's ripping from Marx. Probably it's because she and Marx were ripping from the same occult sources in order to write that down, which is ultimately hermeticism. A little while later, she writes, those upon the teaching ray, so those who are <laughs> the teaching ray, her seven rays, so those who are teachers, will learn to teach by teaching. Now build the plane while they fly it. They will learn to teach by teaching. There is no surer method, provided it is accompanied by a deep love, 
personal yet at the same time impersonal for those who are to be taught. Above everything else, I would enjoin upon you the inculcation of the group spirit, for that is the first expression of true love. Two points only would I make. First of all, in teaching children up to 14 years of age, it is necessary to bear in mind that they are emotionally focused. They need to feel, and rightly to feel beauty, strength, and wisdom. They must not be expected to rationalize before that time, even if they show evidence of the power to do so. Feed them feelings, 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 until they're 14. After 14 years and during adolescence, their, man- their mental response to truth should be drawn out and counted upon to deal with presented problems. Oh, problem-based learning. Even if it is not there, an effort should be made to evoke it. Secondly, an attempt should be made to approximate the child's place on the ladder of evolution that keeps coming up by a study of his background, his physical equipment, the nature of his response apparatus with its varied reactions, and his major interests. Kind of like something you'd have to gather a lot of data about with, I don't know, biotech or whatever. Wearable tech, digital friends, eye tracking... SEL surveys. This inquiry sets up a subjective rapport with the child, which is far more potent in its results than would be months and months of strenuously used words in the effort to convey an idea. So this ladder of evolution, like I mentioned, there are different root races. This is something Alice Bailey took from Helena Blavatsky. Um, And the third of the five that they mention, root races, is Lemurian, which is workers. The intellectuals are the fourth, and that's the Atlanteans, like from Atlantis. And the fifth are the mystical and occult, and that's the Aryans. Like, yes, the same Aryans that Adolf, literally the same Aryans that Adolf Hitler sought to create. Because Adolf Hitler was a big fan of Helena Blavatsky in his weird race occultism that he wrote about primarily in the 11th chapter of Mein Kampf, came from the root race theories of Helena Blavatsky, which also informs the education of the New Age, written by Alice Bailey, and the methods of the Fetzer Institute and social-emotional learning. So it's like, at this point, we can pause to appreciate that Adolf Hitler is like the weird great-uncle of social-emotional learning. Just let that hang out in your mind for a minute. Okay, so what's the goal of this education in the New Age? She says, it is essential that we start our work as it should be based on that which is in uh, is today in existence. Nature works without any gaps, and so uh, and this is so even when, from the standpoint of academic science, there is an apparent hiatus between facts and known species. In transitional periods, some of the bridging forms have disappeared and the gap appears to be there, but it is not so in fact. We have not yet discovered all that is to be found in the world of phenomenal appearances. So phenomenology pops in here. We are passing through one of the great natural transition periods at this time. We are laying the foundation for the emergence of a new species of human being a more highly evolved unit within the human family. Maybe Yuval Noah Harari's idea of Homo Deus, God-man. I don't know. Hence, much of our problem and much of the present failure to meet the demands of the race and to measure up to human need for development. Okie dokie. So the goal of the education of the New Age 
is to lay the foundation for the emergence of a new species of human being, a more highly evolved unit within the human family. And the, because that's what is being laid, there is a big problem. And so that's why the work is necessary. So this starts sounding again a lot like Marxism. I'm going to read one more really big piece from this chapter, and then I'll read a smaller piece and kind of summarize the rest of the book for you and then kind of get out of this these weeds. But this part, I really, it's, it's long, um, really kind of summarizes the objective of education from Alice Bailey's perspective here in the first chapter of Education in the New Age. And it sounds so similar to Marxism in so many ways that it's just kind of stunning. And again, therefore, you're going to, here, social emotional learning tucked all within it. The so the objective, she says, of education should therefore be the training of the mechanism to respond to the life of the soul. The higher capital S self or capital S soul is the sum total of the consciousness of the capital M monad. Again, in time and space, the lower self or soul; those are not capitalized is for our purposes as much of that sum total as any one person in any one life can use and express. This is Hermeticism, by the way. So there is a kind of world soul or a God soul or just spirit. It is the consciousness of the monad, which is the deity, the, the one. The So there's God. That's the monad. Its consciousness is the divine mind or the self or the soul, the high self, the noose in the Hermetic writings, just the noose, N-O-U-S, the Greek, the noose. And then the lower self or soul, by the way, that's exactly what the Corpus Hermeticum does. The Corpus Hermeticum is like the book of Hermetic alchemy. It's their religious book. And it talks about how you have to link your personal little mind, noose, to the divine total mind, noose, higher mind, and that's really the seed of your intelligence. This, these two sentences are exactly that translated into different words. The higher self or soul is, those are capitalized, is the sum total of the consciousness of the monad. Again, in time and space, the lower self or soul for our purposes is as much of that sum total as any one person in any one life can use and express. That's just hermetic belief of what one being in connection to the hermetic whole is. This activity is dependent upon the type and quality of the body nature, the mechanism produced by soul activity in other lives, and the effect of reaction to environing conditions. The increasing of soul awareness, the deepening of the flow of consciousness, and the development of an inner continuity of awareness, plus the evocation of soul attributes and aspects upon the physical plane through the medium of its triple mechanism, constitute the objective of all education. Okay, so just remember, this is the objective of all education, according to Bailey. These aspects are, as you well know, one, will or purpose. This, through education, should be developed to the point where the manifested life is governed by conscious spiritual purpose, and the life tendency is correctly oriented toward reality. The right direction of the will should be one of the major concerns of all true educators. The will to good, the will to beauty, and the will to serve must be cultivated. Let's pause to remember that when you're dealing with a Gnostic like this, reality means the way they interpret reality. That does not mean actual reality. Which is why they say that all views of reality are interpretations of reality, so they can say your you know, actual attempt to apprehend reality is no different from their crackpot cult or occult view, if you want. Two, love wisdom. 
This is essentially the unfolding of the consciousness of the whole. We call it group consciousness. Its first development is self-consciousness. Hmm, this is self-awareness, right? Group awareness, social awareness. Sounding very castle. Its first development is self-consciousness, which is the realization by the soul that in the three worlds of human evolution, man is the three in one and one in three. He can therefore react to the associated groups of lives which constitute his own little phenomenal appearance, meaning who he is. Self-consciousness is therefore a stage on the way to group consciousness, and it is the consciousness of the immediate with a capital I. And so... Let me pull up the Castle 5 wheel where they have the uh, the five things put in an order. So let me see. How do they start out? I want to figure out where they have like the little um, order of it. Well, here they are anyway. So what we have is that we're going to teach um, self-awareness. So you start with the awareness of the self, then self-management. Then you teach responsible decision-making then you teach relationship skills, then you teach social awareness or group awareness, right? That's the Castle 5. Those are the Castle 5 social-emotional learning competency areas in the order that they recommend them. Self-awareness is begin to be taught in pre-K. Social awareness is where you peak out in high school, okay? So they're in that order. Self-awareness, self-management, responsible decision-making, relationship skills, social awareness. That's the Castle 5. What do we have here? That we start with Will or purpose, which is the understanding of you as yourself, and then love wisdom, which is the unfolding of the consciousness of the whole, which is group consciousness. Its first development is self-consciousness. But the castle five, the first part is self-awareness, self-consciousness, self-awareness, which you then learn to manage through self-management. And what we see here from Bailey is that um, the the realization of the soul and the three, the three and one and one and three, and you learn to react within your own little phenomenal appearance, then self-consciousness is therefore a stage on the way to group consciousness and the consciousness of the immediate. And what we see is that we, we how does it work? Self-awareness goes into self-management. Self-management goes into responsible decision-making. So you're connecting the self to others. That deals with relationship skills. And then that leads into true social awareness or what Bailey calls group awareness, at which point you can have the consciousness, I guess, of the immediate, which is God. And she says, through education, this self-consciousness must be unfolded until the man recognizes that his consciousness is a corporate part of the greater whole. So the self-awareness through social awareness pipeline, in other words, he blends them with the group interests, activities, and objectives. They are eventually his and become, and he becomes group conscious. This is love. This is literally the progress of the of the Castle Five. It leads to wisdom, which is love manifested in love and manifested activity. Self interest becomes group interest. How by learning self management, responsible decision making, which means that you start to take into account others, and then um, shoot, what was the other one? Um, relationship skills, and then those give way to finally having social awareness or group interest. She says, such should be the major objective of all true educational endeavor. Love of self, self self-consciousness, love of those around us, group consciousness, become eventually the love of the whole or God consciousness. And such are the steps. Three, active intelligence. 
This concerns the unfolding of the creative nature of the conscious spiritual man. It takes place through the right use of mind, with its power to intuit ideas, to respond, to impact, to translate, analyze, and to construct forms for revelation. Thus the soul of man creates. Oops, sounded Marxist. This creative process can be described as far as its steps are concerned as follows. Before we do that, hang on. Concerns the unfolding of the creative nature of the conscious spiritual man takes place through right use of the mind. So that's why you have to have self-awareness followed by um, self-control or whatever the hell they call it. I have to keep looking back. Self-management. So you have self-awareness leading into self-management and then into responsible decision-making, blah, 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 blah. So these steps of active intelligence are the soul creates its physical body, its phenomenal appearance, its outer form. The soul creates in time and space in line with its desires. Thus, the secondary world of phenomenal things comes into being in our modern civilization as the result of this creative activity of the soul's desire. Nature limited by form. Ponder on this. C. The soul creates through the direct agency of the lower mind and hence the appearance of the world of symbols, which fill our united lives with interest, concepts, ideas, and beauty through the written word, the spoken word, and the creative arts. These are the products of the thought of thinkers of the race. The reason this sounds similar to Marx's ontology of man as a creator who understands himself to be a subject, who then is able to create objects in the world and see himself reflected in that which he creates and know himself to be that which created it, is because they come from the same occult source. They have the same occult background. The right direction, she says, of this already developed tendency is the aim of all true education. The nature, so in other words, to raise this creator consciousness within you is what education's for. The nature of ideas, the modes of intuiting them, and the laws which should govern all creative work are its goals and objectives. Thus, we come to the world of attributes which supplement the activity of the three aspects in the same way that the three major rays are enhanced and aided by the work of the four minor rays. These four attributive unfoldments in man through the activity of the soul and manifestation are four, the attribute of harmony produced through conflict. Oh, oh, a conflict theory where harmony comes through class conflict or something. How Marxist? Because it comes from the same occult stuff. The hermetic background of Marxism and New Age nonsense that created SEL is the same. So when SEL takes up transformative and becomes Marxist, it's actually taking back up its actual... It's just two streams of the same occult nonsense fusing back together. Anyway, harmony produced through conflict. This leads to release and to the eventual power to create. Oh, the, the cycle of destruction and creation, right? Release and the eventual power to create. Destroy the existing society to create a new one. Denounce the existing world to announce the possibility of something different. The revolution must become perpetual, comrade. This is one of the attributes which education should deal with from the angle of the intuition and should hold before its exponents as personality and group objectives. Oh, we're going to study personality and group objectives. And the reason is because we have to understand the snake eating its own tail, the Ouroboros. Um, it is the attribute latent in all forms and is that innate urge or discontent which leads man to struggle and progress and evolve in order to finally make atonement and union with his soul. 
You mean to discover his true species being, is how Karl Marx worded the same occult nonsense. It is the consciousness of harmony and beauty which drives the human unit along with the path of evolution to an eventual return to his emanating source. Education must work, which was to be communist for Marx or back to the one, back to God in Hermeticism. Education must work, therefore, with this dissatisfaction and interpret it to those who are taught so that they can understand themselves and work intelligently. Huh, what does social-emotional learning do? Oh, it sparks and looks for that exact same dissatisfaction and uses an equity lens to interpret it to those who are taught so they can understand themselves in light of the group and work, quote-unquote, intelligently. How about that? Five, the attribute of concrete knowledge whereby man concrete knowledge. How strange that that's there. The attribute of concrete knowledge whereby man is enabled to concretize his concepts and so build thought forms whereby he materializes his visions and dream and his dreams and brings his ideas into being. Hmm, there's Marx and Hegel. This he does through the activity of the lower concrete mind. The true work of education is to train the lower man in right discrimination and true sensitivity to the vision so that he can build true to the purpose of his soul and produce upon the earth that which will be his contribution to the whole. Okay, you have to appreciate that this is Gnosticism. You have to appreciate that this is Gnostic occultism. What does it say? Let's work it backwards. These people who are going to be the educators of the future know the purpose of everybody's soul and what each person's contribution to the whole will be. And their goal, the true work of education, is to train the lower man to live up to his vision as they understand it. So they, the wizards, the occultists, know what everybody's role, that's your kids, know what their role in the world is supposed to be, or they're going to use data mining to figure it out, and it's to train the lower man so that they will become right in discrimination and true insensitivity to the vision. Whose vision? Theirs, which they believe is given to them from God because it's gnosis. It is Gnosticism. It is not science. It is horseshit. And why? So that he can build true to the purpose of his soul as determined by the Gnostics and produce upon the earth that which will be his contribution to the whole. That's exactly what they want to do with social emotional learning, though, is build out the profile to make sure you're perfectly employable in the economy of the future, which they are going to build for us to stop the various multi-crisis or whatever the fuck Klaus Schwab is about. It is right here that the work of modern education has to begin, she says. They have to assume that they know what every person's supposed to do or devise some means of extracting that information from them through data mining and then groom them into fulfilling their purpose in the whole that they envision. Completely totalitarian. This, it is right here that the work of modern education has to begin, she says. Not yet can man work with intelligence in the world of ideas and patterns. Not yet is he sensitive to the true spiritual values. Because the Gnostics alone know those. Only the wizards know those. They just so happen to match exactly what they want. Isn't it crazy? This is the goal for the disciple. 
even though the masses cannot yet function on these levels. Oh, the, um, the, we need this super elite theosophical lunatics to, to operate on that level for us. Trust the experts. The experts know all the things. The first thing that must be done is to train the child in the correct use of the discriminating faculty and in the power of choice and of directed purpose. Sounds like self-management and then relation or, um, responsible decision-making, doesn't it? He must be brought to a truer understanding of the underlying purpose of being and be led to work with wisdom in the field of creative activity, which means in the last analysis, in the right use of the, quote, mind stuff, or in parentheses it says, the chitta of Pantanjali. Thus and only thus can he be released from the control of his lower nature. Okie dokie. Imagine if your higher nature was to be a species being, like Marx said, which is to be a socialist or a communist. And let's say that you were to put this into a five-step program where you teach people to be self-aware and then to manage themselves and to make responsible decisions and then to create the ability to have relationship skills on the correct terms so that you can have true group or social or socialist awareness, which is exactly the Castle Five in order. Imagine if that, imagine if that's what the thus and only thus can lower man be released from the control of his lower nature so that he can have the right use of his, quote, mind stuff. Because he must be brought to a truer understanding of the underlying purpose of being, you know, to be socialist. At one mint with everybody else. Six. The attribute of devotion is the next to be considered. Devotion grows out of and is the fruit of dissatisfaction. Well, that's where Marx said that knowledge comes from suffering, isn't it? Devotion grows out of and is the fruit of dissatisfaction, plus the faculty, or plus the use of the faculty of choice, hmm, responsible decision making. According to the depths of man's discontent and his power to see clearly, he passes from one point of temporary satisfaction to another, each time demonstrating his devotion to a desire, to a personality, to an ideal, and to a vision until finally he unifies himself with the ideal which is the highest possible to man, the Wissenschaft Liter Socialismus. Oh, but it doesn't say that. That's what Marx says. This is, first of all, the soul, and then the oversoul, or God. Educators are therefore faced with the opportunity of dealing intelligently with the innate idealism to be found in any child, and with the interesting task of leading the youth of the world on from one realized goal to another. But they must do uh, but sorry, but this they must do in the future from the angle of the ob ultimate soul objective, you know, equity. And it doesn't say that. It says from the angle of the ultimate soul objective and not as in the past from the angle of a particular standard of national education. This is an important point for it will mark the shift of attention from the non-essential to the essential. This is the equity framing in SEL. This is what it is. This is the orientation toward the socialism or the socialist manner, the social philosophy, or the Wissenschaft, Liter, Socialismus, and Marxism. It's the same thing. And again, this isn't ripped from Marx. Marx and this crackpot, Alice Bailey, were using the same source material. It's the same occultism, and it defines our education through social-emotional learning. Seven. Finally, the attribute of order and the imposition of an established rhythm through the development of innate faculty to function under directed purpose and ritual. Huh. The imposition of an established rhythm, self-management, 
responsible decision making through the development of innate faculty to function under directed purpose and ritual. Mm -hmm. This particular attribute of divinity is now highly developed in one aspect so that we have today much standardization of humanity and the autocratic imposition of a ritualistic rhythm upon public life in a large number of countries. It can be seen to perfection in the life in our public schools, but it is an undesirable perfection. This is partly due to the recognition that the unit or individual is only a part of a greater whole, a recognition which is much needed, and a part of the evolutionary unfoldment of the race. Now, this whole child, whole child, whole child, whole child, holistic, holistic, it's all part and parcel of the same occult base. Owing, however, to our, fa our faulty application of any new truth, it means as yet the submergence of that unit in the group, that's how Paulo Freire talks about it, is the submerged groups, leaving him little opportunity for the free play of the individual will, intelligence, purpose, and soul technique. Educators will have to work with this principle of innate attribute and this instinct to ordered rhythm, making it more creatively constructive and so providing through it a field for the unfoldment of soul powers. She continues shortly thereafter by saying, one of the major functions of those who train the infant minds of the race will be to determine as early as possible in life which of the seven determining energies are controlling in each case. The infant, social-emotional learning in pre-K, all the way down to actually birth if they can do it, to determine as early as possible in life with the infant of the race. Why? This tech, the technique to be later applied will then be built upon this important initial decision. Hence again, the growing responsibility of the educator. A child's note and quality will be early determined, and his whole planned training will grow out of this basic recognition. This is not yet possible, but will shortly be so when the quality and nature of any individual etheric body can be scientifically discovered, say by hooking them up to galvanic or, galvanic or whatever they're called, skin monitors, heart rate monitors, eye tracking, effective computing, machine learning, batteries of uh, personality inventories, batteries of quizzes and surveys that, that do person, detailed personality inventories. This development is not as distant as might be supposed or anticipated, she says. No shit. And it's here. So then she says, it is necessary, therefore, that we grasp the facts that, one, the new education will be primarily concerned. Sorry, I said that wrong. The new education will primarily be concerned with the scientific and conscious bridging between the various aspects of the human being, like, I don't know, social and emotional, thus producing coordination and synthesis and an increased expansion of consciousness through the establishing of right lines of energy. So the, the different... The bridging of the various aspects of the human being. I mean, you might create a collaborative to work on that, that, say, tries to work together with a, co a collaborative, you could call it, that's for academic, social, and emotional aspects of being a you know, collaborative for academic, social, and emotional learning castle. Huh. Maybe. Two, the task of the new education is therefore the coordination of the, per of the personality, eventually bringing about its at one with the soul. Let me read that one again. Two. The task of the new education is therefore the coordination of the personality. Now, how are you going to do that? I know, social-emotional learning. Three, 
the new education will deal with, analyze, and interpret the laws of thought. What? Will deal with, analyze, and interpret the laws of thought because the mind will be regarded as the link between the soul and the brain. These laws are the means whereby one, or A, I should say, ideas are intuited, B, ideals are promulgated, C, mental concepts or thought forms are constructed, which in due time will make their impact telepathically upon the minds of men. Four, the new education will organize and develop the lower concrete mind, collaborative for academic social and emotional learning. Gotcha. Five, it will teach the human being to think from universals to particulars. Oh, hi, Hegel. How you doing? As well as to undertake the analysis of particulars. Oh, yeah, certainly. Good to see you, Hegel. There will be consequently less emphasis in future schools upon the training of the memory. Interest will greatly aid the will to recall. So, oh, you have to increase interest and engagement, like through culturally responsive curriculum. Okay. Six, the new education will make a man a good citizen by developing the rational aspects of his consciousness in life, teaching him to use his inherited, acquired, and endowed equipment for the evidencing of the social consciousness and attitudes. You know how hard it is to not make a joke about endowed equipment right here. Oh my God. But anyway, teaching him to use his inherited, acquired, and endowed equipment for the evidencing of the social consciousness and attitudes. Okay, so look. Good citizenship, the education will make a man a good citizen or a global citizen, maybe, by developing the rational aspects, teaching him to be self-aware, self-manage, make responsible decisions, have good social interactions, and then eventually have the social consciousness and attitudes. Castle 5, here we are. 7. Above all else, the educators in the new age will endeavor to teach man the science of unifying the three aspects of himself, which are covered by the general title and title of mental aspects. 1. The lower concrete mind. B. The son of mind. The soul. The self. All of which are capitalized. They are talking about a single proper noun. They are in fact talking about the divine intellect the N-O-U-S, the noose in Greek, and C, the higher abstract or intuitional mind, which is the mind of God. Or A, the receptive mind or common sense, B, the individualized mind, and C, the illuminating mind. Eight, the educators in the new age will deal with the processes or methods to be employed in bridging the gaps in consciousness between the different aspects Thus, the science of the Antakarana, or however you say that, will be brought definitely to the attention of the public. I'm just going to say the science of the Antakarana, or however you say that, is going to be social-emotional learning, also known as the science of right-human relations that she talks about. Nine, the extension of this concept of bridging will be developed to include not only the internal history of man, but also the bridging between him and his fellow men on all levels. Ten, it will also include the training of the human mechanism to respond to life impacts, you know, like self-management, and to the soul. The soul is essentially intelligence, vitally used on each plane. I've left out a lot of crazy here, by the way with the planes and the all of that. It function as the discriminating mind on the mental plane, as the sensitive consciousness on the emotional plane, and as the active participator in physical life. This intelligent activity is always used from the wisdom angle, which I think they call the equity lens now, or the critical consciousness. 11. 
The new education will take into consideration A, the mind in its relation to the energy body, the etheric body which underlies the nervous system and which galvanizes the physical body into activity, B, the mind in its relation to the brain, C, the mind in its relation to the seven centers of force in the etheric body, I assume those are the chakras, and their externalization and utilization through the medium of the major nerve plexi to be found in the human body, and the relation, which will become increasingly obvious, to the endocrine glands. Better give some kids some hormones. D, the brain as the coordinating factor in the dense body and its capacity to direct the activities of the man through the medium of the nervous system. She goes on to recognize the importance of esoteric wisdom, psychology, endocrinology to future education. That's right endocrinology to future education. But that's enough of this. And I, like I said, I've skipped all the really crazy stuff. And I'm not trying to like show off how crazy this book is. I wanted to focus on how its aspects are related to education. It would have been easy to just read a bunch of like yogic sounding gobbledygook and spiritual planes and root races and all of this stuff. So that's enough of chapter one for now. Chapter two, I'll read a little bit from chapter four in a, in a few minutes. Chapter two, just to summarize, is about the cultural unfoldment of the race. And it gets into quasi-Nazi race occultism, no kidding, uh, beginning with a long discussion about civilization and culture, just like chapter 11 of Mein Kampf does, and the importance of Atlantean and especially Aryan people, the Aryan race, the fifth root race, uh, in guiding the cultural unfoldment of the human race toward a higher spiritual plane of existence. You see, the Atlanteans aren't even high enough, just a few of them are. And the Lemurians, the workers, certainly aren't high enough. Only the Aryans are high enough to bring about the true transformation to the new age, the new spiritual age. This chapter focuses on, quote, esotericism as the road to human redemption. That's what it's oriented toward. And it talks about the importance of enlightened so-called world servers. Now, earlier when I said that Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation gives money to the Lucius Trust that was established by Alice Bailey, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was actually named as a world server organization by that foundation until, for some reason, mysteriously, that disappeared from their website a couple of years ago course, it makes a lot of sense that Bill and Melinda Gates dumped a river of money into both Common Core, which, by the way, was done by a guy named Robert Mueller, who was a huge fan of Alice Bailey's, um, derived from the World Core curriculum he created for the United Nations. And also, uh, he dumped a lot of money into that, like $300 million. But now he's dedicated like almost $2 billion, well, like $1.7 billion to the implementation of social-emotional learning. And his organization, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which funds a ocean of this educational garbage was named as a Lucius Trust Lucius Trust World Server organization until some for some reason that disappeared from their website. Sure that he just like pretended that never happened or something. Chapter three is about the next steps for the mental development of humanity and elaborates upon these same themes. Um, just kind of a little taste Quote, young people will then be studied from the standpoint of their probable point upon the ladder of evolution and will be grouped as A, Lemurians with physical predispositions, B, Atlanteans with emotional dominance, C, Aryans with mental tendencies and inclinations, D, new race with group qualities and consciousness and idealistic vision. In case you thought I made that up, no, that's where it comes from. Next, it's chapter three. 
all about this stuff. So you have your workers, they're barely human, they're Lemurians. Then you have your emotional people, and actually some level of intellectual people, and that's your Atlanteans from Atlantis. And then you have your mental, occult, mystical Aryans, who are the fifth root race and are the higher level. And then they're supposed to come about, and the whole point of education, remember, is to create the new race. And we're going to figure out which kids are in the new race, and that's going to be what Klaus Schwab calls the creative class. Whereas maybe the Lemurians are what you've all know a Harari at the World Economic Forum called useless eaters. But anyway, the new race with group qualities and consciousness and idealistic vision. Huh. A little further down in that chapter to give you a taste of this chapter three nonsense in this crazy book. Quote, it is bridging work which now has to be done. Bridging between what is today and what can be in the future. If during the next 150 years we develop this technique of bridging the many cleavages found in the human family and offsetting the racial hatreds and the separative attitudes of nations and people, we shall have succeeded in implementing a world in which war will be impossible and humanity will be realizing itself as one human family and not as a fighting aggregate of many nations and people, competitively engaged in getting the best of each other and successfully fostering prejudices and hatred, which is kind of like literally the goal of the United Nations, but it's also a more inclusive world using woke inclusivity. This chapter, the third chapter, ends with a whole section about what it means that we're having the dawning of the age of Aquarius, the end of the Piscean age, the Pisces age, and the beginning of the Aquarian age, which is the new age in which we need new education for a new race of people, new, a whole new race of human beings, homo deus, with group qualities and consciousness and idealistic vision. She doesn't call it homo deus. Yuval Noah Harari does at the World Economic Forum. Chapter four is a hell of a chapter. We're going to come back and read some of it in a minute. Um, it's about the culture of the individual. That's the title of it. And it contains some real bangers. There's a fifth chapter, which is about the bridge of Antakarana or whatever the hell it's called, which is just like three pages of why we need basically to do this spiritual yoga thing in order to have education. And we'll come back to these real bangers in chapter four. So let's recap on Alice Bailey and the Lucius Trust before we continue. What we really have, you've heard enough of the crazy, you have enough of the feel like, holy shit, this really does look like we're SEL. There's a direct bridge from Bailey to um, the Fetz, to John Fetzer, big time, and the Fetzer Institute to social-emotional learning. That's not ambiguous. And so this opens up a lot of questions, like, is social-emotional learning actually a cult? Is it literally a cult? I'm not talking like, is it kind of religious in some cute way? Is it literally instruction in occult practices for occult purposes, passed off and hidden in the secular? That's a big question we need to apparently ask. Why is it rooted in this book? What, why is the Lucius Trust located in the United Nations building? Why is it headquartered there? Why is this so well-funded? Why is there money from the Fords, the Rockefellers, the Gates, from Fetzer himself, hundreds of millions, and others? Why is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation a world server, but then not really anymore? That's off the website. But then they're a world server, and then the two huge educational pushes in the United States that came out of this, which are Common Core and... Uh, Social-emotional learning are where Bill Gates has dedicated $2 billion of his treasure to do literally woke shit 
with education. Why does the Lucius Trust, why is it the primary print publisher for all of the United Nations stuff? What's its connection to the United Nations? What the hell is going on? Why is, why, why, why does, I didn't mention this. Why does the Lucius Trust have annual meditation, like retreats to support the World Economic Forum meetings in Davos every year, which they do. Why do they do that? Why do they conjole all their members to go and meditate for the success of the Davos meeting? Which they do. It's on their website. It's all over their website. And they're like, they're really proud of it. What's the relationship of the Lucius Trust to the United Nations? Does it have a relationship to the British Parliament, seeing as it's headquartered across the street? I mean, so is a hotel, so it's not proof. But what's going on? Why, by the way, I didn't mention this either. You can find a lot of Alice Bailey's works, not just through the Lucius Trust directly or by finding them on, you know, corporate giants that sell books. But they're listed on the UNESCO document page, UNESCO Docs. If you go to UNESCDocs.org, you can actually find a lot of, including Education in the New Age, listed in the official United Nations Library. Why are Alice Bailey's books listed in the United Nations or UNESCO Library? It's weird. Let's back up, though. We've heard some of what Alice Bailey's theosophy is about. Where did it come from? Well, it came from, as we can now tell, New Age occultism or the Theosophical Society, largely from Helena Blavatsky. We don't know what, she, what, what Alice Bailey mixed in, or I don't know what she mixed in, separate from Blavatsky. Blavatsky was probably an outright fraud. She was Russian and of Russian and German parentage. She was in. She she lived in the UK. She ended up traveling to India. She brought back the idea of the Aryans as the superior race. Had some historical consequences. Um, she created the Theosophical Society. A lot of people got involved in that. Okay, so let me name a couple. We've already heard about Alice Bailey of the Lucius Trust and how she got kicked out a few years later for doing her own. Um, channelings. We've also also heard that, or we've also already heard about Adolf Hitler, whose Aryan and eugenics ideas actually came from Helena Blavatsky and her theosophical ideas. Now I'm not saying that Adolf Hitler studied with with Blavatsky. It seems to be the case that Blavatsky wrote this stuff in the United Kingdom in, in, in England and it took off there and it took off in kind of mystical Germany at the same time and became quite the rage, especially in Germany, and that Hitler picked it up through kind of occult channels that were just popular in Germany and, as far as I know, did not study with Blavatsky directly. Some other people did. Alice Bailey, obviously, but also a name that should be more famous than it is, which is Annie Besant. Annie Besant was one of the kind of core Fabian socialists. So the Fabian Socialist Society, which 1984, George Orwell's book is named in homage to, imagining that they had 100 years of power, that's the world that they would create. Um, Annie Besant, one of the architects and masterminds of the Fabian Socialist movement, which is the wolf in sheep's clothing, the gradual thing, the reshape the world, George Bernard Shaw, I have many people that I wish to kill, video guy, that's them, uh, reshape the world to your heart's desire, heat it up and reshape it to the heart's desire, Fabian window, this whole thing, you know, the open conspiracy, all the H.G. Wells stuff, uh, Fabian, it's all Fabian. Uh, the London School of Economics, 
Fabian, the Labour Party Fabian. The Fabian socialists actually were heavily influenced by Helena Blavatsky through Annie Besant. Um, but I mentioned H.G. Wells, and H.G. Wells, if you don't know, ran off from England, um, tore across the Atlantic uh, with a woman that he ran off with by the name of Margaret Sanger, who created Planned Parenthood, was also a devotee of Helena Blavatsky. So Blavatsky taught Sanger, Besant, Bailey, and indirectly Hitler, which is quite the um, pantheon of holy shit. Uh, if you wondered why there's so much Planned Parenthood stuff connected to the United Nations agenda, the comprehensive sexuality education, and all of the social-emotional learning stuff in schools, why is Planned Parenthood all over the schools? Oh, turns out Margaret Sanger and Alice Bailey were occult sisters in the same branch of witchcraft. Let's read a little bit of these bangers I said from chapter four to get a flavor for these characters. Okay, so in particular, I'm going to shed a little bit of light on um, the Hitler eugenics Aryan thing and a little bit of light on the Planned Parenthood thing. Uh, which all comes down to Blavatsky's ideas of the root race, but these are repeated in chapter four of Education in the New Age, which we now have some reason to believe influenced the creation of social-emotional learning. So after a section about the angle of citizenship, which is kind of big at the beginning of chapter four, and I would emphasize to you that you pay attention, that all of education right now is geared toward the idea of creating global citizenship, and global citizens don't exist because there's no global sovereign. Citizenship is a relationship between a sovereign and the people, so there's no global sovereign, so there are no global citizens, but this is a dialectical move to get people to believe that they're global citizens, so they'll demand a global sovereign later. But anyway, after talking about the angle of citizenship being core and central to education, and the Aquarian age needing different requirements, pssst, they're global, compared to the Piscean Age, which is going to be very consumerist and nationalist. Hmm. The next section after this starts to deal with why there is so much unrest in the world, and what she actually calls it is reasons for the present world unrest. And she says, let me list, this is Alice Bailey, by the way, let me list for you some of the reasons for the present world unrest reminding you that many of them are based upon causes which lie in so remote a past that history knows nothing of them. And it's convenient for people who want to make shit up, isn't it? And they appear meaningless to you because you have no clear idea of the nature of early humanity. Kind of like how Marx has the only true scientific study of history of man, and therefore you have to listen to him about, oh yeah, typical Gnostic trick. They know it all better than you. You don't know the true story. Woohoo. Some grasp of the essential situation will be of value if you are to follow development in the future intelligently. First, she says, the point reached by humanity itself is one of the major and primary causes. Remember, we're talking about of world unrest. This evolutionary status has brought mankind to the threshold of a door upon the great path of evolution and has indicated an unfoldment which necessitates drastic changes in man's entire attitude to life and to all his world relations. These changes are being self-initiated by him and are not imposed upon him by an outside force or by the coercion of humanity in any form. 
I'm just going to remind you real quick that this was probably written in the 1930s when Hitler was rising to power. I'm just going to another fan of Blavatsky. Second, the emerging of a new racial type. Hmm, nothing scary here. The subjective outlines of this type can already clearly be seen. Now, racial here doesn't mean like black, white, by the way. Human race is what it refers to, but there's going to be a new type of human. Okay, so that's what it's actually talking about. The subjective outlines of this type can already clearly be seen. So glamored are we by the form side that many claims are made today that the new race is to be found in America. The new race is forming in every land, but primarily in those lands where the fifth or Caucasian races are to be found. Among the fourth race peoples, however, a few, such as those to be found among the Chinese and the Japanese, are being discovered by the hierarchy and are making their real and esoteric contribution to the whole. Let me also make one definite statement at this point which may cause some surprise. The fifth kingdom in nature, the spiritual, will emerge out of the fifth root race, such as the esoteric control of the law of correspondence. This is going straight into like Kabbalion nonsense, by the way, which is a hermetic book that appeared in like 1903 and is really weird and don't know if it's actually ancient or not. But it talks about all these like 49 levels or something like this of, of different planes of, 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 but that are broken into seven pieces of seven or something like that. I don't know. It's a bunch of bullshit. But the fifth kingdom of nature the spiritual, because you have the, the below that you have the mineral, the vegetable, the animal, and then the human, those are the fourth. And then the fifth is the spiritual plane, the fifth kingdom in nature, the spiritual will emerge out of the fifth root race, such as the esoteric control of the law of correspondence as above, so below, so as below, so above. I would remind you, nevertheless, that only the fourth root race people to be found on our, sorry, that the only fourth root race to be found on upon our planet are the Chinese, the Japanese, the various Mongoloid races in Central Asia, and they are somewhat intermixed with the Caucasian race, and the hybrid groups found in the many islands in the southern waters in both oceans and hemispheres, as well as the descendants of the races which a million years ago made the South American continent famous for its civilization. I am necessarily widely generalizing. The new racial type is far more a state of consciousness than a physical form. It is a state of mind more than a peculiarly de uh, designed body. In time, however, any developed state of consciousness invariably conditions and determines the body nature, that's as above, so below, and produces finally certain physical characteristics. The outstanding type of awareness of the coming new race will be the widespread recognition of the fact of the mystical perception. Its primary quality will be the intuitive understanding and control of energy like talking to a baseball and making it go into the strike zone like John Fetzer. Its contribution to the development of humanity is the transmutation of selfish desire into group love, just like Karl Marx. This can be seen working out noticeably even today in the attitudes of great national leaders who are not, as a rule, animated at all by selfish ambition, but are controlled by love of their nation and thus by some definite form of idealism. Is she talking about Hitler? I think she's talking about Hitler. Hence the great emerging ideology. Pretty sure she's talking about Hitler. Ponder on this point and get a wider picture of the growth of the human consciousness and grasp that and grasp somewhat the new goal, or sorry, the goal of the new and coming educational system. I think she's talking about Hitler. And remember, 
The fourth type of people are in the Asians and the Mongoloids or whatever, but the f- the new race is forming in every land, but primarily in those lands where the fifth or Caucasian races are to be found. Ooh, hmm, hmm. The education in the new age. This is Alice Bailey. Third reasons for disrest or unrest is the end of the Piscean age, which is an age of individualism and consumption. And thus forth, I'm not going to read all of that. Fourth, the dawn of the Aquarian age, which is meant to be socialistic or communistic and based in self-sacrifice to the group. And that transition from individualism to communalism or collectivism is another huge cause of unrest. So these ideas are derived from the same ideas from Blavatsky that inspired Hitler in a profoundly dangerous direction. In fact, I think Bailey might even be through a veil praising Hitler here, though that's not clear. It could be praising Stalin as well. It could be praising who knows who. Um, maybe it's praising FDR. I don't know. But at any rate, Blavatsky's ideas, these same ideas about the root races and the Aryans and the Caucasian people being the only people that have a really good one, but the Japanese people being kind of okay too, but on a lower level, but sort of, but not, are the ideas that caused World War II and Hitler. Um, And that connection between Blavatsky and Hitler is pretty well considered uncontroversial at this point. I mean, it's even on the Wikipedia entry uh, for Blavatsky. Um, that these are the ideas that led him to develop his Aryan race ideology and to adopt the swastika as his symbol, which is was popularized as an Aryan symbol by Bavatsky after she visited the relevant region of India. And, of course, Hitler was a fan. But it turns out that the causes of unrest also tie into parenthood and eugenics for Alice Bailey. This is, again, from the fourth chapter of education in the new age. And so in the next section, she talks about the angle of parenthood and she talks about how important parenthood is and that something about how education and parenthood connect, but it sets up another section called trends indicative of future developments. So we're going to have a little bit of a long read here, but this is seriously some not good uh, stuff we're about to hear. She says, as I said before, the subject of parenthood and child training is too great for ample or satisfactory discussion in these brief instructions. But certain statements can be made which will be indicative of future developments and point the way to where the changed attitude may be anticipated. Let me list them as follows. One, the emphasis in the future will shift from the urge to produce large families to that of producing quality and intelligence in the offspring. This will include that science of which eugenics is the distorted and exoteric indication. When the fact of the etheric body with its four centers is scientifically established, the above prophecy will assume significance and meaning. Two, the need of an increasing birth rate will be eventually regarded as erroneous. And this, for three reasons, which it would profit you to study. Where did Bill Gates get these weird ideas about stuff like that? Huh, and eugenics. Uh, but not like the crude eugenics, but the kind that you do with mRNA or whatever. Huh, I don't know. I don't know. Where did he get this idea? But anyway, the need for an, uh, of an increasing birth rate will eventually be regarded as erroneous. And this for three reasons, which it would profit you to study. She says, A, many souls are rapidly achieving perfection and passing away altogether from our planetary life. This process will be, so people are becoming enlightened and they die and they actually go on to the next spiritual realm. They don't reincarnate. 
That's what she's talking about there. This process will be intensified during the coming Aquarian age. It should be remembered that the door will be shut for some time as yet upon the animal kingdom, and for a long period, no individualization will culminate in materialization into physical bodies. Technically, any individualization which may take place will be that which is technically called individualization into pralaya, there to await the inevitable call. There will be, therefore, no necessity for a massed and hurried creation of human forms. So what she's saying is that there are not going to be enough human souls of human quality to fill human bodies, so we shouldn't make as many babies. That's what she's saying here. And as we go into the Aquarian age, that's going to become more and more and more relevant. We need to make fewer bodies because there aren't enough human quality souls. There will just be animal souls moving into humans that then are called to have to await the call because they're not going to be uh, raised up for a long period. So she's saying that we have to not have too many babies through etheric eugenics, esoteric eugenics, because there aren't enough good souls left. That's what she's saying. Just to make that really clear. B. The economic situation will make it necessary that certain physical restrictions should be imposed, because it is now evident that beyond a certain point the planet cannot support humanity. Hey, Bill Gates. This is more fundamental in its implications than you can imagine. Again, we have evidence of a growing realization of the race along this particular line. That realization is as yet distorted and much misunderstood, and is today producing the promiscuous use of contraceptive methods. As the intelligence of the race is developed, and that is uh, going on apace, as the laws of rhythm and approach are grasped, those are hermetic principles from the Kabbalion, it will then be found that there are certain innate reactions which will negate conception. There are certain innate reactions which will negate conception. So you can use your psychic powers to not get pregnant, girls. Or maybe boys. And that, uh, and that then the mechanical means will no longer be required. So you won't have to take birth control anymore. This sounds as yet extremely vague and almost impossible. Yeah, no shit. But the race is rapidly achieving personality control, even though our idea of rapidity may not be yours. And this, in its turn, must produce certain automatic and inherent changes. This is a point which must be grasped by esotericists. Three, or C, I'm sorry. We'll get to three in a minute. The widespread promiscuity of the sexes and the rule in many countries which entitles a man to possess many wives, which is an insult to the woman, will eventually and inevitably cease. It is, in the last analysis, a form of legalized prostitution, and the fact that it has the endorsement of tradition and centuries of practice does not mitigate this position which I take. Through this lack of regulation and of essential rhythm, the natural consequences have occurred and millions of souls have been brought into incarnation who were never intended at this time to incarnate and achieve exoteric manifestation. Uh-oh. Let me summarize in normal language. People have been humping too much. They've not been doing things right. They don't have the spiritual power to control their, their baby making. And millions of souls have been brought into incarnation who were never intended to have occurred. What would you do with millions of souls that were made that were never intended to have occurred? 
Huh. I wonder if Margaret Sanger had any ideas about what you would do with millions of souls that have been brought into incarnation who are never intended at this time to incarnate and achieve exoteric manifestation, which means have a body, which means live. This fact is largely responsible for much of the present economic distress and for the modern planetary dilemma. Oh, so we have a problem where there's poverty and and, and, and planetary dilemma, so environmental problems, because we made a bunch of babies, millions, that don't have proper souls that never should have been born. What could we do? Margaret Sanger knows. The economic situation and the necessity to provide for the unduly large population of the planet lies behind much of the aggression and greed of the nations down through the ages. And for the effort being made today, uh, and for the effort being made today as never before to provide better and more adequate living conditions. War has consequently been the inevitable result of this undue and unlimited propagation of the human species. This lack of sexual control, in case you think I misinterpreted her, this lack of sexual control has brought into the world thousands, it's now thousands, it used to be millions, of unwanted children whose appearance is solely the result of accidental and uncontrolled sexual relations and in no way indicates the planned intention of parents. In no way indicates planned parenthood. Hmm. Planned because intended to offer experience to incarnating souls with the conscious intent of offering the opportunity to hasten the, quote, birth into the light of those particular souls, thus rendering service to the divine plan. See, so what she's saying is only when you have the correct high level, you know, spiritual understanding and you make a baby on purpose so it can be an enlightened baby, does that baby count? Otherwise, you didn't properly plan your parenthood. And with planned parenthood not being part of how your baby was made, we have millions of unintended souls that have been brought into carnation who are never intended at this time to incarnate and achieve exoteric manifestation. And the whole problem of the planet comes down to having made these millions of inferior, spiritually inferior babies because of unplanned parenthood. <laughs> what in the world could possibly be done Margaret Sanger, to deal with that. Oh, three, the science of eugenics and of sex hygiene and the development of mentally controlled relationships will steadily grow. Oh, Planned Parenthood. Much that is now taught along these lines is erroneous and wrongly motivated, being based upon fear, expediency, and the desire for improved racial attributes in physical perfection. The right form of scientific sex control, leading to those right conditions in which souls may incarnate, cannot be imposed by law. See, it has to be magical. Only magical babies count. Everybody else is a problem on the planet that maybe shouldn't be allowed to be born because they were never intended to have exoteric bodies, forms. The desired ends may be aided by educational methods and is already this being... And already this is being done in a tentative and embryonic manner, but the real change in human consciousness which is needed will appear only as the race itself is brought under a rhythmic law. I wonder how you would teach that. Under which, for instance, the animal lives function or the seasonal law under which forms in the vegetable kingdom operate, thus transferring the whole concept onto a higher turn of the evolutionary spiral. This, when it is brought about, will produce certain fundamental changes, regulated sex life and organized parental life and mental differences in the racial attitude toward the sex relation and its ordained consequence, 
birth. Hmm. Four. As yet, it is only the religious person who thinks in terms of the two necessitated and inevitable births, the physical and the spiritual, and he thinks of the relationship between the relation between the two as purely symbolic and not in any way to be interpreted literally. Yet there is a close relation and an analogy between the two, which, as time elapses, will become more clear. There can be no new birth, no creation of the quote body of light, and no quote manifestation of the sons of God, apart from the process of physical incarnation. There can be no fusion of the opposites of soul and personality apart from the physiological processes of sex, and I say this deliberately, for it is in the relation of the sexes that the element of time enters into the experience of the soul, and the understanding of this will come when the doctrine of reincarnation is properly comprehended and taught universally. It is here that sex magic and the inner tantric teachings have gone so woefully astray and have been centralized upon individual development and the attainment of some experience which is presumed to promote spiritual attainment. The underlying idea governing all that has been given out on the sex relation heretofore is twofold in its implications. A, to provide bodies for incarnating souls so that certain destined evolutionary unfoldments may be carried forward and the attainment of an equally destined inevitable spiritual unfoldment becomes possible. And B, to impart the scientific procedure whereby bodies, quote, built in the dark may gradually be superseded by bodies, quote, built in the light. Thus will be brought about the manifestation of the foundational light aspect of the world in its underlying structure. We're almost there. Five, the sex relation has therefore only one major objective, which is to produce physical bodies for incarnating souls. The relation between the soul and the personality is consequently a higher aspect of the basic sex expression of the universe, and this relation is intended to bring about the appearance of a son of God as light in the world, enabling him to say, as did the Christ, that he is, quote, the light of the world, and to fulfill the injunction, quote, let your light shine. Again, the relation between humanity and the capital H hierarchy is intended to produce the radiance of group light and to cause to emerge out of these two planetary groups or bodies through their close uh, fuse, close fusion, sorry, there's something on my screen there, uh, through their close fusion and scientific interrelation, that form of divine manifestation to which the name, quote, the kingdom of God has been given in the West. I would ask you to ponder on these five points or statements, which are only intended to be sub suggestive, to evoke brooding thought and to indicate those elementary ideas which will bring in the newer attitudes to parental responsibility, like Planned Parenthood. In the world today, there are many thinking men and women who are conscious of and earnestly desiring the above, and who are working toward these ends, but the mass of the people and their untold millions are totally unaware of the situation. Isn't that true? Either in its economic or, especially, I guess, in its esoteric aspects. One task of the educator of the future will be to teach the meaning of the law of rebirth, and thus bring about such a profound change in the racial attitude to life and sex, to birth and parenthood, that sex rhythm, cyclic experience, psychological preparation, and directed, controlled bodybuilding may go forward and supersede the present methods which are based upon an uncontrolled response to the sex urge and desire and the unthinking procreation of children. It should just add unwanted children, because that's what she means. The vast population of the world today is the result of an animal response to those urges and of the general promiscuity 
which is perhaps the outstanding factor, esoterically speaking, and from the standpoint of the hierarchy of the present world distress economic difficulties and national aggressions. Think this out, for it holds a clue. Probably is worth telling you that Hermeticists simultaneously hate and hate sex and utterly expect everybody to have lots of babies, which is complicated. It's a topic for another issue or another another episode of the podcast or something. The hermetic thing is is wild. But in case you wondered why Planned Parenthood as an organization is so integral to education today and comprehensive sex education is so integral to what's going on, or comprehensive sexuality education, I should say, through the United Nations specifically, which is weirdly connected to all this crap because the Lucius Trust is located in the United Nations building. Here you go. It's kind of weird. So what's going on in Ed Programs today? That's enough reading her book. Like I mentioned earlier, Common Core actually comes from this. Common Core was developed as what was called the World Core Curriculum or Education for All by a person by the name of Robert Mueller, who is not the FBI guy or related, names not even spelled the same, who was a UN career guy over 40 years. He helped spin off UNESCO. He was like the deputy secretary general. He was like second in charge of the United Nations or something like this for a while. And he created World Core and Education for All, from which was derived largely by Republicans, rhinos like W and Republican governors, uh, created Common Core, created Common Core Standard out of the World Core Curriculum and Education for All from UNESCO that Robert Mueller came up with. Um, and it turns out that Common Core, or Robert Mueller, was, as I mentioned before, a gigantic devotee of none other than Alice Bailey. His program was informed, or at least not ignorant of, the writings of Alice Bailey, say, for example, in this book. Now, it turns out the United Nations, and I think UNESCO actually, is where comprehensive sexuality education was also developed in its present form and pushed out into all schools in the world starting in 2003 and four. Now, Common Core is relevant to social-emotional learning. How? Well, there's a little bit of history here, but the primary thing is that Common Core set up the federal reporting standards for educators. Teachers became required to report on what they were doing to achieve academic competence under Common Core. They didn't have to report so much on academic mastery under Common Core, what the students were doing wasn't as important as the teachers reporting on what they were doing. They had to report on how they were trying to fulfill the academic competencies required by Common Core. And so massive amount of school and teacher reporting to receive federal money came in through the Common Core program, which just so happened to have also been devised by somebody who was really big into the Alice Bailey approach at the United Nations, which is somehow like a Lucius Trust outpost of some kind. But if we look at social-emotional learning and how it got mainstreamed, Common Core is kind of necessary. One of the big characters involved in mainstreaming social-emotional learning is a woman named Linda Darling Hammond. That's a hyphenated last name, Darling Hammond. Um, she was actually kind of, if you wanted to stick a, a, you know, a pin on who the uh, big social-emotional learning cheerleader is, it's Linda Darling Hammond. So who was she? We're not going to go into a bunch about this, but she was... She wrote the foreword, by the way, to the social emotional, the handbook of social emotional learning research and practice that we quoted from earlier. And she says actually that what makes something social and emotional, a school social emotional learning compliant is that it's Freirian and that it's transformative and humanizing. 
in quotes Freire and what he means by that, which boils down to Marxism, in case you didn't know. Uh, but she works, she's, she's high up or she's emeritus now. She used to work high up at Castle. Um, but in, in 2008, she was brought in as the big social emotional learning cheerleader on Obama's education transition team after he was elected, but she got, she didn't get the job to do the thing in the department of education. She got sidelined for Arnie Duncan and Arnie Duncan brought in the common core. And like I mentioned just a moment ago, Building off of George W. Bush's No Child Left Behind disaster, if you wondered, W's part of the program, by the way, uh, Common Core built a, a humongous educational reporting apparatus and federal financing connected to that educational reporting apparatus. Linda Darling Hammond didn't die or go away uh, after she didn't get the Obama job. She actually... Um, worked with Castle, and in that capacity, she helped create and lobby for the Every Student Succeeds Act in 2015, which got implemented and signed into law by Obama. Gigantic piece of legislation that builds off of that Common Core reporting mechanism, and among many other things within it to make sure that every student succeeds, it also mandates not just reporting on what teachers are doing to meet academic competencies, but at least one non-academic competency must also be reported on. Now, under the standard auspices of what I call the iron law of woke corruption, here they get this thing stuck into law. Now the schools have to, all this reporting they're already doing. The teachers are already freaking out under Common Core. They're already pissed off at how much extra paperwork they have. And now, on top of all the stuff they report on academic competencies, they also have to report on one non-academic competency. Well, how are you going to do that in a bureaucratic fashion? Dun, dun, dun. Castle goes out with an army of consultants, sends them out under about a hundred different brand names, Witten Wisdom, whatever they're all called. Tons of these different brand names to go out and to create social-emotional learning programs in schools that check the box. So consultants, lobbyists, etc. go out to the districts. Think Global Act Local. That's their brand name. Think Global Act Local. So they went to the districts, often bypassing the states, went district by district by district saying, oh, you've got this new requirement over, under the Every Student Succeeds Act. We have a program. Here's our consultants. Pay us money. Grift, grift, grift. Iron Law of Will Corruption. Castle, castle, castle. Cha-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. And they started implementing social-emotional learning from the ground up as a possible one out of any given number of things, ways, an easy, right, right out of the box. Funny how it's right out of the box. Funny how it was already made in the box before the law was produced, requiring it, but right out of the box, way to meet that reporting requirement that got brought in by the Every Student Succeeds Act in 2015, which built off of the reporting mechanism brought in by Common Core, which built off of the reporting mechanisms from W's No Child Left Behind. So you can see this progression building up, which, by the way, was kind of at the same time as UNESCO was creating the Comprehensive Sexuality thing, and the Education for All program was getting pushed out, and the World Core curriculum was being built out of Alice Bailey's ideas by Robert Mueller at the United Nations. What's it doing now? We've got, like I mentioned at the beginning, this WSCC WISC model that's coming back full circle to the whole child education where um, Common Core, I'm sorry, not Common Core, social emotional learning began. I didn't mention it in the history of social emotional learning, but it actually uh, cannibalized a whole child education program that was created by a man named James Comer in the late 1960s, and it developed hit or miss success rates throughout. You heard the whole child stuff in the Fetzer documents near the beginning. I don't have to reread those. 
but it's now coming back to this whole child thing in a kind of circular, or kind of a, you know, the snake is eating its tail. It's coming back full circle in the WISC model, W-S-C-C, whole school, whole child, whole community education model. SEL's at its center, and it's supposed to turn the whole school into a systemic SEL program, just like we heard earlier from Bailey, that it'll be inside of every subject. And it's going to educate the whole child on all their levels, I guess we could say, of mental and spiritual development. And it's going to integrate that into the whole community. And that is the new model that's getting deployed everywhere. And at the center of it is social-emotional learning that's pushing mindfulness, spiritualism, and spiritualist goals something we might consider to be the sci- right the science of right human relations which is going to be say the castle 5 um model of of developing the competencies of self-awareness self-management responsible decision making relationship skills and then finally group or social awareness or uh, communism um and so we have to ask WTF is SEL what the F is social emotional learning. I mean, really, what the fuck is it? What the fuck is this really? This is like seriously occult shit. This is really weird. And it's way too on the nose. And there's a clear like paper trail connecting literally Blavatsky to Bailey, you know, circling in not only Hitler, but Sanger and Fabian, Annie Besant, Margaret Sanger's Planned Parenthood, I mean, through Bailey, Bailey going into the Fetzer Institute, the Fetzer Institute creating social emotional learning in Castle within its walls. Okay. What in the world is this? Why is Alex Bailey at the center of this? This isn't even why is she in the UN building? What's the UN connected? How is the UN connected? To this? Why is the UN connected? What's going on? What the F is social emotional learning? And more importantly, Especially given what we really need to be talking about, not we're not talking about seriously. There are some people trying to poke at it, and nobody knows what to do with it. How people are saying how is social emotional learning not a state sponsored religion? But like, how is it really directly? Like, how is this not state sponsored? Not just religion, but occultism. Like, there are big questions to odd agendas and occultism that are built deeply into the question of how is social emotional learning not a state sponsored religion that's being mainlined without adequate evidence all throughout of our schools while being a giant data mining process in order to do exactly the kind of scary shit that Alice Bailey wrote about in, I'm assuming, the 1930s, published in 1954 in Education in a New Age. And we started with a quote from that book from Alice Bailey with no context. Now let's go back to that quote and let's put it in more full context and we'll wrap up. So I'm going to read two paragraphs from which that came. Much greater care, Bailey told us, will have to be given in picking and training the teachers of the future. Their mental attainments and their knowledge of their particular subject will be of importance, but more important still will be the need for them to be free from prejudice and to see all men as members of a great family. The educator of the future will need to be more of a trained psychologist than he is today. Besides imparting academic knowledge, he will realize that his major task is to evoke out of his class of students a real sense of responsibility. No matter what he has to teach, history, geography, mathematics, languages, science in its various branches or philosophy, He will relate it all to the science of right human relations and try to give a truer perspective 
than in the past upon social organization. When the young people of the future, under the proposed application of principles, are civilized, cultured, and responsive to world citizenship, we shall have a world of men awakened, creative, and possessing a true sense of values and a sound and constructive outlook on world affairs. It will take a long time to bring this about, but it is not impossible as history itself has proved. It will be only common sense, however, to realize that as this in, sorry, to realize that this integration is not possible for every student passing through the hands of our teachers. All, however, no matter all, however, no matter what their initial capacity, can be trained in the science of right human relations and thus respond to the major objectives of the coming educational systems. Nevertheless, the real work along these lines should be started in infancy so that the consciousness of the child so easily directed can from its earliest days assume an unselfish attitude toward his associates. It can be started very simply if the parents so desire. It can be carried forward progressively if parents and teachers demonstrate in their own lives what they teach. Finally, the time will come under these conditions when in late adolescence a crisis needed and planned is precipitated in the young person's life and he will then stabilize himself in the particular manner in which destiny ordains that he shall fulfill his task of right relationship through the means of vocational service. This is from the book Education in the New Age written by Alice Bailey an open occultist published originally by a publishing company called the Lucifer Publishing Company that was renamed the Lucius Trust that's headquartered in the United Nations building and is their chief publishing house and a cons religious consultant to the UN at the highest levels. I ask you again, what the fuck is social emotional learning and what the fuck is it doing in our schools?